you see the people come into your cave with a 200-year-old carpet, the guy tears your ticket in half, it's too late to turn back now. Water fountains all booby-trapped and ready, a stuff laid out on the candy counter. Then you come over here to where it's dark, there could be anything in there, and you say, Here I am. What have you got for me? The house was freezing, so I went to try to light up the fire. And that's when I noticed the smell. The firemen came and broke through the chimney top. And me and Mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird. And instead, they pulled out my father. Everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Patrick Rapol. I am Jim Laskowski, and I couldn't be more excited for our returning guest of this particular episode, Mr. Colin Suter. Welcome back to the show, Colin. Thank you, and you could be a little more excited. Yeah, I, you're, you're, I'm way too excited. He's I not can't that, contain he's my not energy. that famous. Yeah. I am I'm feeling... Not, yeah, seriously. You dial it down. It's <laughs> okay. I'm feeling you're loony. <laughs> I'm feeling loony, no pun intended. Why am I feeling loony, Patrick? Why? Maybe you're talking. Maybe we're going to be talking about a director who's heavily inspired by the Looney Tunes. I think oh. that might be the case, and that director's <laughs> name would be Joe Dante. Um, this is again almost like with John Carpenter, uh, a little little uh, influenced by my nostalgia for his films. I think will we'll, it'll definitely come into play when we discuss it. And I uh, I grew up watching his movies uh, <laughs> over and over and over again. Like I don't know how many VHS tapes I had of some, movies like Explorers and Inner Space, and I would wear them out because I found them endlessly entertaining when I was younger. But uh, we're very excited to be talking about him uh, in light of a recent you know uh, experience me and Colin had when we actually got to meet him at a Chicago venue called the Nightingale. When he premiered, or not premiered, <laughs> but Chicago premiere. Yeah, it was the Chicago premiere of the movie Orgy, which we'll go into a little bit more in depth later in the show. Uh, but yeah, I also wanted to, um, you know, get people caught up on on Colin because uh, he uh, <clears throat> in the in the first episode you were on for the David Gordon Green episode, which is a long time ago, actually. Yep. yep. And uh, you know, we were talking a little bit. You were in production on March April then. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, it's so much has happened since with that, and I couldn't be <laughs> won an Academy Award, <laughs> close to close to it, not quite, but sweeped cans. Yeah, now you're a big star. Now we can't no. be more excited to have, to be for you to. Now you here. are more excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just I'm no. I couldn't be more proud of my friend here because uh, he he put a lot of effort and uh, and craft into the filmmaking process, and you know I worked with him on a couple of documentaries and whatnot, but. To see him work with child actors as effortlessly as he did is uh, a completely wonderful experience, and it's a great short film. Uh, are you going to put it out in some format or another in the future? Yeah. Um, right now, it's still sort of in making the rounds at the festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, there's nothing going on with it with festivals, except I'm waiting to hear back from, I think, four or five other festivals. That'll happen early next year. Cool. But as of now, I mean, we've gotten into 17 film festivals, so 
Those are all just a bonus as far as I'm concerned. If we don't get into any of those four, I'm totally fine with that. Mm -hmm. And it's won a couple of Um, awards, too, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Let me see. Honorable mention at the Green Bay Film Festival, Best Narrative Dramatic Short at the American International Film Festival, and Audience Award for... Uh, best dramatic short at the Hendricks County Film Festival, and these are you know kind of some a lot of these are kind of small up and coming festivals that have just you know started out within the last few years, um, but always you know they're run by really good people who you know are, I think are in it for the for the long haul. So I mean any award or recognition or any festival is just you know it's what that's all a filmmaker wants is their work for to, to be seen, and I know what it's like to work for a long time on a movie and it's never seen uh it's you know that can be very very frustrating and uh but uh so i'm you know i couldn't be more proud and now we have another movie called folktale which is the complete opposite of march april it's it's a it's a 10 minute absurdist black and white comedy thing that's all done in photographs uh much like chris uh Marker, Chris Marker, yeah, is it Legete? Legete, yeah, you know, um, and it, it's, it's the same cast as March April, but we just went the, in the complete opposite direction. You say I worked really hard on March April. We didn't work very hard on Folktale, <laughs> but we're very proud of it. It's a very, sure. I, I'm, I'm very pleased with the outcome. So we'll see how that one goes. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's really just cool <clears throat> to see because you know we, we met as you know film critics and whatnot, and you know we've grown, in, <clears throat> you know, and maintain a friendship over years it's just great to see that you've evolved as a filmmaker oh. all over all this time no oh, thanks so i just wanted to bring that up and you know hopefully uh you know in the future you can check out some of his uh films yeah i have a multiplex near you who knows no, i haven't yeah. evolved as a film critic though that's <laughs> that's a weird thing but that's okay well you're still writing for some uh uh book i believe uh, like a just yeah. a, a, co- a compilation of reviews yeah the mcgill's the mcgill's cinema annual which is a right. sort of reference guide that's published every year um by the same people who do the movie the video hound um and oh, it's, yeah. it's yeah. uh it's i mean you know it's not, there's not much point in plugging it because i mean you can buy it on amazon but they're like 200 bucks um <laughs> you don't want you don't need that it's the most you know, it's not like that college good. courses and yeah stuff, i yeah. mean it's a wonderful book and, and made with wonderful writers our friend eric childress contributes to mm-hmm. it uh, our friend brian tellerico and peter subjinsky a lot of people you've had on your show before yeah, yeah. That's and awesome. it's a wonderful book but you know it's 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 strictly for, for the college kids right so well, great. Um, yeah, we don't really have a whole lot in-house stuff coming no, up. I, I, I was thinking that um, we should just every episode up top um, um, say that uh, we have a we have a two-year limit on spoiler warnings. Mm. So uh, we won't talk we won't talk spoilers for any film that's uh, you know that is uh, less than two years old. But if it's older than two years old, then we're going to talk spoilers. So there's your warning. That's a good idea. Just, because just always put up. that up top in case this is their first episode. Yeah. I know we mentioned a lot, but... That's a good call. Sure. Other I than that, I got nothing. I got nothing, too. Yeah. We're, we're doing good. We're maintaining things. We've, we, lead, we, we lead busy lives, but hey, we're mm-hmm. really uh, thrilled to keep this going. And uh, we're going to be coming up on our 50th episode come January around the same time we're... 50? Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. I didn't know you had that many. I know. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah, we've been doing this for two years, almost, come January. It's very strange. It is. Wait till I put the clip show together. Oh, 
Jesus. I can't wait to see like Patrick cringe at the sound of the. Oh, well, I, I haven't listened to an episode yet. I don't know. You're like me. I don't listen to the stuff I do with Nick DiGilio. Like once it's done, it's I go to weird, bed. And I'm yeah, done, it's a you know? weird. It's almost kind of nightmarish having to relive conversations that you've already been through and you know exactly where everything's going. It's. It, it's, it just makes me cringe. I can't. Also, also been, I just say cringeworthy things. I've been so archiving like, conversations since I was seven years old. Right. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's good to be a little pa- media kind of pack rat yeah. but to actually listen to it. That's another thing. That's no true. Things. But it's not like I'm like listening to it repeatedly over no. and over and over again. I just thought it'd be kind of fun to put together some kind of clip show. But you know. well, we'll do something for our 50th for sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's going to be around the same time we do our best of the year episode mm-hmm. for January. So we'll sort of combine the two and make it a little bit more fun. So that'll be exciting. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Um, so that about wraps up the in-house introduction stuff. And we can move right along to the What We Watch Oh, segment. I watched the Lars von Trier. I listened to the Lars von Trier episode, the one I wasn't on. Oh, really? You I just, you just caught up with that, eh? No, I mean, I listened to it a while ago. I just didn't say anything. Oh, I just, oh okay. Just so you know. So it's you not, you weren't on that show? No, no. I, uh, I ended up uh, having to work. So, so what did you do? Or what did Jim do? I, I just had just, two guests on from oh, okay. uh, different podcasts. Or mm-hmm. Yeah. It went very well. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. it was good. It was it was uh, Kurt, Kurt, Hathier. Kurt Kurt Halfyard was on, so it was also extremely long. But yeah, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it was very. He always brings many incredible insights. Uh, whatever director he comes on, it's always it's kind of crazy though because like some of the directors he's been on, like Michael Winterbottom, Lars von Trier. He's going to be on for Michael Haneke next year. We need to have him on for like a more fun, lighter uh, mm-hmm. director in the future. Maybe. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. So um, let's move on, shall we? To the What We Watched segment. I'm watching the movies, baby. What did you watch this week? Was it Rambo or True Grit? Maybe you just watched Dante's Peak. Let's talk about the films. The films that we saw. And when we can talk anymore, we'll know. Saw them all. Yeah, perfect. Hey, Colin. Hey. What's up? Uh, not much, Jim. I'm very curious about what you've watched recently that you want to talk about. Um, well, I mean, some of the stuff that I've seen is, you know, stuff that's coming out this Thanksgiving weekend. You know, Thanksgiving oh, cool. weekend is a big, you know, usually a, a pretty big weekend. This is kind of a mixed bag of stuff, though. Mm-hmm. You got The Life of Pi, which I haven't seen yet. Um, and you got Red Dawn, you got Rise of the Guardians, and Hitchcock, which I also haven't seen yet. Hmm. Um, but uh, could go either way with that one. Yeah, it should be interesting. I'm I'm very curious about that one. Yeah. Uh, I did see the remake of Red Dawn, which has uh, been hmm. sitting around the shelf for many many years now. And I can see why. <laughs> um, it's not a cabin in the woods situation. No, 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 no. no. This is not very... a hidden masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. Imagination. Um, this is the you know remake of the 1984 film, which is you know known an interesting bit of trivia for people who might not know. It's the very first PG-13 movie that was ever released. Um, and we're oh, going to yeah. be talking about a movie that could help contribute to the creation of that rating right. uh, later on tonight. Um, and, uh, this movie of course is also PG 13. Um, but that's irrelevant. It's a stupid film. Um, <laughs> what did they do the, wrong with the remake? Well, well, know, okay, it's, well it's, do you like, do you like the original? Do you have I, any affection have, for the original? No, I don't. I, I, I know a lot of people do. I mean, it came out in 1984 and, and by, you know, by that 
by that it, it would be right right to assume that I would have some affection because I have a lot of affection oh, for we, that time period. Yeah, we I do too. <laughs> um, and I you know I do have an affection for uh, the Outsiders, which is that same kind of cast. That mm-hmm. sort of you know Patrick Swayze and all these guys. Um, no, I don't. I you know when it came out, I didn't see it in the theater. I don't even think I saw it on video. I think I really just waited for cable, which is a year. You know, yeah. um, <laughs> that's that's real indifference in the mid '80s if you wait for a cable. Um, and when I saw it, I just thought, eh, okay, you know, I just thought it was kind of dumb. Um, I know it's written by you know many talented people. You know, Kevin Reynolds and John Melius wrote that film. John Melius directed I know it. Kevin Reynolds did. Yeah. Um, so I, so it's got pedigree. Yeah. You know, and and I and I can understand why people have an affection for it. It's it's a very you know kind of silly kind of jingoistic Rambo style you know mid eighties Reagan I mean, action was, movie. It was more common but, in the eighties, but I do I will say that I always have some kind of affection for just so few like diehard conservative films ever. Oh, yeah. Hollywood that mm-hmm. oh, yeah. whenever one actually does pop up it's always kind of a treat <laughs> oh, I, oh I totally I'm totally right with you on yeah. that because I, I well I used to always go and see anytime uh, in, in, in you know when, when when Bush was in the White House every once in a while they'd come out with a big conservative movie yeah sure. um, but not a big one but like a really small independently produced sort of independently produced by Walmart in some cases um, <laughs> and I'd go see these movies just because they're hilariously bad right so bad um, so I, I'm, I'm right with you on that but uh, and this is this kind of falls not not quite in that ter- in that territory in this movie instead of the Russians it's North Korea right and it was originally Chinese but then right out of fear for uh, out of fear for we need their money yeah I mean, for- we need to keep borrowing from them we, <laughs> exactly. need, we need to not piss them off so um, so with this one you know it's 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 the logical choice is North Korea and this one you know clips clips along at about ninety just under ninety minutes. Um, the storyline, I mean, it's, it's, I, I mean, I think the first one is, has a ridiculous storyline. This one even more so, mm-hmm. um, because it's inconsistent. It's being, you know, America's being taken over, but Subway is still open. Um, so, you know, you can still get a Subway sandwich if you want to, but you know, uh, that, you know, so I guess, do the I Russians guess, I guess land the Koreans Subway? like Subway. Like, do, they, huh? do the, do the, do the, or not the Russians, do the, do the North Koreans land at Subway in this movie? Cause that's, no. that's what I remember in the, in the original, like the Russians land in front of a McDonald's at one point. I, yeah, I don't remember. I just remember in the original, the, the Russians landing outside of the high school. Right. And this one, it just doesn't land. It just land randomly. It just happens, you know, when, while they're in, while the main characters are in transit um characters is putting it lightly there are no real characters in this movie it's you know your standard stock they're almost like horror movie characters they're not real people they're just and they're not real like actors worth noting you know um the one uh you know there's one main bad guy korean you know who's sort of modeled after the the main bad russian from the original who by the way was played by the same actor who played the devil in the apple um, oh. That's the other thing about Red Dawn that means something to me. Wow. Um, but no, there's this is just this is just a you know it's not fun bad. It's just kind of bad and bland and you know uh, not. You know, it's, and it's, it's played a, completely straight. It's very straight. Yeah, it's very. It's played completely straight. Absolutely. That's a shame. Yeah. That's a problem with a lot of remakes. I think is that they, I, I honestly. I mean. I don't know. This sounds bland, but if you play, I could see it being funnier being yeah. played straight than if they were trying to wink the whole time. Mm, yeah, I wouldn't want like some kind of 
wink, wink, uh, um, Starsky, uh, Starsky and Hutch kind of um, remake with like where Ben Stiller plays the Russian evil guy. Yeah. No, I mean that makes sense. But, I just I think you got to find the right like tone or the right balance between the two, and to take it like too seriously to where there's. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't say like that the, the remake has to like have a self awareness of the existence of the original or something like that because that can be really annoying as well. Well, one of the funny things about the original is that other than the hilarious kind of premise, um, there's not a lot that's like really corny and sh- there's not a lot of se- yeah. like classic scenes you could point to. I would. There's yeah. a little scene. There's a little bit of scenery chewing in the original. There, there, there's some. I, I think there are some ridiculous moments. I watched it over the summer uh-huh. again. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I remember Harry Dean Stanton having a big moment in that <laughs> film. That was that was. Is he really screaming? Avenge me! Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, Um And the big money shot. One of the big money shots in the original Red Dawn is when they're running across the field, and then you see the three kids pop out of the ground with machine guns right, and they yeah. them down. And this one, they do that within the first twenty minutes. Like they blow their load like right away. Um, yeah, so, and, and it only takes about one, it takes one montage, you know, so there's one montage sequence where they're, you know, the, 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 the leader or, you know, the main, one of the main characters is a, you know, a big brother who just came back from Iraq and he's all, you know, uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's the guy who has all the experience and shooting and everything like that. And so with, there's a montage scene where he's training all of his little brother's friends to be soldiers and mm-hmm. everything. And, you know, so within, within like two or three days, he's, they're like crackpot. You know, I mean, they're, they're like, uh, you know, hundred percent mercenaries, right. <laughs> you know, and they're called the Wolverines again. And, you know, um, so it pretty much plays, it pretty much goes by the same playbook as the original. It just, it's more of a, in a hurry to get done. So uh, that's a shame. Yeah, it's, well, it is not, I don't shame. think it's a shame. I, I seriously don't <laughs> care. For, for, like, go ahead, remake Red Dawn. I so don't care. And you know what? Mess it up. I so don't care. You know, <laughs> it just I don't think it's a shame at all. I think it's whatever. Yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> shrug it off. I mean, yeah. I don't. I don't have a strong affinity for the original myself. It's. It's one of those things, though. It's. It would like when the Expendables came out. Like I had. Not necessarily like super high expectations for it to be great. I was just kind of hoping that why not tap into that crazy '80s sensibility and be, oh, yeah. you know, be over the top. But again, it it, it took its plot too seriously, and I, I don't know. It's it's it certainly had moments of you know humor to it where it, w- it had a self awareness that I didn't think was like overly annoying. But again, yeah. it's it's still one of those things where I don't know if they're ever going to sort of do that right where they like capture that 80s spirit and make it fun in the right way. Was Red Dawn a strike uh, film? I know it's been shelled for a while. It seems like the kind of movie that would get greenlit with no real purpose is... It, I don't do you know. know if it was? I don't know what the story hmm. is. Why it's been on the shelf so long? Because it's yeah. not exactly. It's not relevant. No, it's, it's not. There's no. no reason to to remake it. It's not no. a. I don't think it's necessarily going to no, do and, well and, and, by and, name recognition. No, and when you watch it, I mean, if you know that it was made like three or four years ago, there's nothing prophetic in it, right? You know, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's like wow, they were really onto something when they made this three or four years ago. No, not really. <laughs> well, it's a shame. I mean, the the screenwriter did the Last House on the Left remake, which I actually thought was better than the original. That was okay. Yeah, yeah. I was, it was surprising. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of surprises, I was pretty surprised by uh, by Lincoln because um, 
I wouldn't say uh, because he lives at the end. They changed it. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite. One of my favorite things I saw on, on Facebook. Somebody created. Uh, actually, I think it was George Takai posted this because um, I have friends who are on, who, who who post his stuff. Picture of Abraham Lincoln, and it says uh, Lincoln is doing well in the theaters. But history has proven that this is not always the case. <laughs> and one of the other things I remember seeing was uh, somebody else posted a picture of it at a theater. And I'm sure a lot of theaters did this without thinking about it. The, uh, the picture of the Lincoln poster, which is just a big you know, f- uh, profile shot of Lincoln's head. And the poster next to it is the one for Skyfall with James Bond pointing a gun yeah. right at, right at yeah, Lincoln's yeah, yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. Right at the back that. of his head, yeah. yeah. I've seen that, too. Yeah. I was surprised that, that Lincoln ended with him going, Party on, dudes! <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, at the very least, I was expecting, hopefully, well, it could be the Daniel Day-Lewis show again. Yeah. And that enough is maybe enough to get me in the theater because he's such a compelling actor to watch. Uh, and I know that you need more. You need more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's, it, it's like we get like a stage version of the West Wing. How do, <laughs> you, like, how do you... What do you mean? It's just like there's just oodles of intellectual dialogue being thrown at you. A lot of political speak. Yeah. And to me, that was like thrilling. Like they made it exciting because... I'm a sucker for, you know, just smart dialogue when it's, you know, given to you in droves, but, you know, when it's delivered by actors who sell it. And it's, you know, there's tons of, it's not all dry speak and big words and things you don't, aren't able to comprehend. The way they convey it through their emotion, you understand what they're getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's, it's, it's a fun movie. It's, there's a lot of levity to it. Especially, you know, with the uh, the three lobbyists, James Spader, John Hawks, and uh, um, Tim Blake Nelson, they all they play three lobbyists who sort of intervene and try to influence some some voters to to vote for the Thirteenth uh, Amendment, and that was a lot of fun to see them sort of like bumbling around at times, and you know, I I, I was worried because when you think uh, Lincoln and Spielberg and biopic, it's just going to be kind of dry and stuffy, and it's going to you know, because you know, a lot of biopics are literally point A to point B in a person's life, and you know, you know how it's yeah. going to end, and there's really no tension or suspense. And the way that it sounds less like a biopic and more a, like a political thriller that that happens to be about yeah, a certain part of Lincoln's life. There's certainly some thrills in the way the like how the you know he's got a lot of internal conflict to go through in terms of getting this vote passed and everything, and all the people has to go through and. I think it was like almost theatrical in the way it was presented, and the fact that Spielberg sort of dialed things down. There's not a lot of score being raised. I mean, it has a couple of moments like that, where it's like, yeah, it kind of reminds me of like a little bit of the things he might have done in Amistad, but it's really toned down. It's not nearly as bombastic um, in some of his other films, like uh, you know, like in Color Purple or stuff, where I feel like he might have felt a little insecure and kind of wasn't didn't have it all, you know, um, fully. Like invested in the material, I think he he's always had his emotional investment in the material. But in terms of just letting things play out, in um, you know, with with just like the characters, because the more and more I, especially recently, I'm just really drawn to people and characters in the movies, and this movie really does that so well, uh, you know, because it's not just let's focus on Lincoln either. There's a lot of side characters throughout this movie that we get to learn. Uh, more about. I think 
probably, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt isn't getting a whole lot to do because he's just the son who shows up and, you know, just wants to uh, go to war. And that's kind of his only arc, really, is just like, come on, Dad, I want to go to war, <laughs> you know, and that's pretty much all he's given to do. Uh, and that's not necessarily, like, disappointing in the grand scheme of things because there's a lot going on throughout it all. It's more just like, look at all the shit that Lincoln has to process in the midst of having to, you know, go through one of the more substantial historical uh, events in our nation's history. And I think it was really smart of both Kushner and Spielberg to focus on just one significant event until about like the last 15 minutes or so, because we kind of have to know how, you know, this ends basically. And so does it, does he get assassinated in the movie? Yeah. Does it does it feel like a, a natural part of the movie? Or does it feel like just oh, it's a Lincoln movie? We have to. Um, I, I was okay with. I it. heard it's all. Of, I mean, everything I've heard is just about the amendment. So it is pretty much yeah. all about that. And then we, for the last fifteen minutes, I'd say we we go there, and it didn't it didn't really feel like unnecessary or unnatural for him to go to to take that approach with you know it could have just ended with him passing the amendment and. You know, happily ever after, not you know, or you know, just like oh, he did this incredible thing, and let's focus on that fact alone. Um, but I think he ends it on such a high emotional note with uh, the last bit of dialogue that Lincoln has while he's leaving his house. It's such a satisfying final bit of uh, dialogue that he has that it worked. Oh yeah, so well, and I was just entertained throughout the whole thing. I mean, I I could see people maybe being. A little restless because they're not used to like a dialogue driven Spielberg movie. I mean, it starts off with like a little bit of the Civil War action, and I was kind of like, well. Yeah, I was going to ask, did it seem like your audiences were um, kind of annoyed by the lack of vampires? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they, they were kind of, an, I don't know if they were annoyed, but I could sense, you know, them being like, it's a taken two, it's back. two and a half hours of dialogue. Yeah, much. <laughs> yeah, and for that can me, be a bit much for some people. For me, it's it was never boring, and for a guy who ate up, I haven't watched like the entirety of the West Wing, or you know, I just really do enjoy theatrically presented films, and uh, for Spielberg. When you say, so okay, wait, but when you say theatrical, do you mean like it feels like it's on a stage, or well, at times, I mean, or do you just I, mean he still has dialogue driven? It's dialogue driven, and he still, you know, he still glides the camera. It's not like it's all just still, you know, through at times, but it's. Uh-huh. Uh, you know the courtroom scenes again. I've I've probably gone on record as saying that when a courtroom scene is done well and like I I, I get a sense of dramatic tension, I, I I eat it up. I really think it's well done and one of the Spielberg's more restrained and fun movies. Like Tommy Lee Jones is incredible in this movie. Like he's he brings a lot of levity throughout, but he's also really impassioned for a good reason that you find out about. And I, I think just a lot of credit has to go to the cast and screenplay for this, too. I mean, I, but I was, I was just surprised. It was one of the, those movies I was kind of like, it could go either way, because I think the trailer, a lot of people, when I told them how great it was, they're like, really? It looks kind of like a typical Oscar bait kind of a film. But um, I, think it's, I think it's actually a, a must-see. Yeah, it is one of the best movies out there right now. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be around for a while, so... Definitely. So, do you think Daniel Day Lewis is pretty much a shoe in at this point? Well, as a nomination, yeah, yeah. I mean, def- I don't know. Let's see how he you know, how he how he couldn't get nominated. Um, 
you know, is he the winner? I don't know. I haven't even thought that. <laughs> I, I, I'm not there yet, yeah. you know. <laughs> I'm not even close to even putting together any kind of a top ten list or anything like that. Oh, sure. We I've got, seen a we lot of a stuff. Long way to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I mean, we, we, I just got my screening invitation for The Hobbit, so I'm very happy about that. <laughs> oh, of I course. I can't wait. I, can, I, I, I understand that. Um yeah. But I, I'm just curious, real quickly though. I never got a chance to see War Horse, and mm. uh, were you a fan? And where does this? How does how does these two movies compare? Well, uh, I liked War Horse for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's definitely an old-fashioned sort of David Lean kind of movie, and oh, that's okay. that's the feeling he's big going spectacle. for. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, big you know panoramic sunset shots. You know, that that's sort of the epic feel he's going for. He's going for old-fashioned, and it mostly works. Works. I wasn't crazy about I wasn't crazy about it as I was getting going because the main character, the 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 boy, was so annoying and not a very good actor. And I thought, oh my god, if we're going to be stuck with this character for the next two and a half hours, I'm, I'm, I don't I'm going to lose it. But you know the the way the movie is is the horse goes on you know meets has various owners and goes on you know meets various people and isn't put in various situations. So I like that. So as after that first twenty twenty five thirty mm. minutes, I liked it a lot more. Um, this one is it's it, 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 it's it's a totally different feel. It's a totally different kind of movie. Because I was worried you know? a little bit because at the beginning it, it it seemed like it could go the self-important route just like... Yeah, you know, yeah. But um, even just the way he presents Lincoln at the very beginning I thought was a good choice and um, what can you say about Daniel Day-Lewis and yeah. his stories and how uh, you know, you can tell that Lincoln was just this impassioned individual who really you know, struggled so much with some of these big decisions he had to make, and yet he he had so much conviction and 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 uh, enthusiasm for a lot of important things going on at the time, and like just seeing how politics plays out in that era doesn't seem very different to th- how things no. must go on today. No, so I think it's actually a very relevant movie to see now. All right, so Patrick, what did you watch? Um, I watched a lot, actually. I was actually considering doing a lightning round, but at the end, I think it came to like 13. No, no, no. It came, it came to, to a... Thank you. <laughs> okay. It came to like 13 different movies. I don't think that's enough to do a lightning round. Um, also... 13? Yeah. That's... I did 10 last time. Yeah? Yeah. You only did 10 last time? Yeah. All right, I'll do a lightning round. You think? Wait, no, I don't know that... I can't think of them off the top of my head. Forget it. No, nope, not going to work. Do you have them like archived on the internet somehow, or...? No. No. Oh. Okay. Um, that's fine. <laughs> Man. Um, all, I, all I will say though, is if you get a chance to watch Fantasia on Mushrooms, go ahead and watch Fantasia on Mushrooms. Mm. I, it almost doesn't need to be said. but Portobello was, Mushrooms, of course? Yeah, yeah. Shiitake. Right. Uh, it goes really great. I know. Actually, you know, when Fantasia was first released, one of the things that Walt Disney wanted to do was sort of a William Castle kind of thing to tie into Matt Nailer. He wanted to pipe in smells during different segments. Oh. Like there'd be like different flower smells during all the nutcracker stuff when the during Night on Bald Mountain, like gunpowder like kind of oh. stuff like that. But uh That'd it ended cool. up not being feasible mm. um at the time. But uh it's amazing to me that that movie was feasible at Yeah. <laughs> that movie's amazing. It, it is so my, odd. It is the best animated film I've I've ever seen. I, I consider it the best uh, single best achievement in animation. I, I, you watched I agree. it on Blu-ray? 
What did you watch? Yeah, I own them. Yeah, that's that's one of the few Blu-rays I own. Okay, Um, I'm going to borrow that from you. Absolutely, cool. Um, I don't have the. I don't. I just have the Blu-ray. I don't have the case. But that that is just so spectacular, and it's it's kind of droll. Like uh, I forget the name of the conductor who sort of hosts the whole thing, but he kind of says a lot of funny things about the different uh, music, and Mm -hmm. and uh, he like he. uh, I think. I don't know if it's the first or second um, movement they go into, but he's talking about how the composer thought it was his worst work. And it goes, just goes to show you how wrong an artist can be about their own work. <laughs> like he turns into a, like a music critic in somewhere in there. Um, and I honestly, I think Fantasia taught me how to listen to music. Like, Oh, really? The, just the opening um, Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Um, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Just the way that like little pinpricks of light and l- bouncing lines and stuff are sort of represent like that's now that's just how I interpret music now. I just hear kick drums as big thudding circles. I just you know like mm-hmm. it's like amplified. In your yeah, mind. I can't listen to music without unless it's like truly uninspiring and bland. I can't listen to music without imagining some kind of visual component going along with it. In oh, that my makes head. sense. Sure. And that, I, that has come from watching Fantasia so much as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it probably is watching MTV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, one of the greatest contributions to DVD, uh, any, any DVD is the commentary track that they put together for Fantasia oh, made really? up of mm. Walt Disney talking about Fantasia. All these interviews and all these Whoa. conversations they had of Walt Disney talking about Fantasia and, and hearing him like pitch ideas for the sequences while we're watching the sequences. And, you know, uh, all the ideas he's like just pouring out of him, you know, to, it's, it is such an so amazing that did, thing to listen to. So that to. did largely come from Walt Disney himself. A lot oh, yeah. Of the- hmm. Oh, yeah. If you ever read di- of Disney's biography. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know a lot about the history of, of Disney. Yeah. yeah. Same. I mean, they. I mean, he. You know, they had. Like I said, I mean, the fact that that movie even was possible at that time, just you know, uh, you know, months and months, years and years of of just sleepless nights getting that thing made with the technology that they had, which was primitive. I and and I owning it on VHS, like in the nineties. I assumed it was from the eighties. Like it's <laughs> truly timeless. Right. You yeah. don't no, think of it as a forties yeah. as a film from the forties. You oh, know, it's like, mind boggling. It yeah. really is. It really is. And just yeah, and just watching it, I'm just like these are. This is not probably not twenty four drawn, but it's like that's just twelve like paintings a second. But it, yeah. it's all just so beautiful, and it's all perfectly conceived, and it's and it, it it's like it it. It complements the music. It doesn't override the music. It doesn't feel like a bunch of cartoons. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even the stuff with the hippo and hippos and the alligators, like, don't feel like uh, it doesn't feel like, oh, they're just trying to be silly. Like, you can feel the love for the music. It helps, it helps like a little kid appreciate classical music in yeah. a way that nothing else could possibly. <laughs> yeah. But he caught a lot of flack for that movie, though. I mean, I mean, at the really, time, it was at the seen time. As, oh, as, yeah. The, mu- you know, serious music scholars just hated it. I mean, he just oh, got, re- wow. yeah. Oh, no. He got, I can see got that. Big trouble for, for that movie. Oh man! From, well, from the music, it's amazing how wrong a music scholar can be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did. I did watch that. I um, like I like I said, I was sort of in a different uh, state of mind at the time, but uh, um, it was it was still you know it's still great. I watch it you know in any any which way. Um, I but I one thing I did watch is I watched every Dirty Harry movie. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And I thought mm. I could talk about those real quick because sure. they're not good. Like, <laughs> the, either the first or the second. Uh, the first is Dirty Harry. The second is Magnum Force. And uh, I was go the back first and forth. Dirty Harry based on the Zodiac Killer? Mm, yes. Oh. The, the the plot of it was, but they catch him, and then it turns into. Uh. Well, see, one of the interesting things about Dirty Harry movies is they're very unapologetically. Well, the first movie is unapologetically conservative, and it's mm-hmm. and it's about look, there are maniacs just loose on in the city, and there's nothing we can do because all of these all of these liberal pansy lawyers they want to coddle them and they want to you know they want to coddle criminals no one's being tough on crime and it takes someone who's willing to go above the law in order um and where a lot of movies have this premise someone going outside the law to pun it like it they rarely feel like doctrine they really feel like that they're trying to like seriously deal with a political stance and this film uh, dirty harry does feel like that which makes it funnier because it's so ridiculous and so silly like at one point the uh, the Zodiac uh, Scorpio is actually uh, his name in, right. in the Dirty Harry movie. At one point, Scorpio uh, has been caught by uh, Harry Callahan, but because of due process or whatever, he has to be let go. And then Scorpio, instead of just going, oh, I, I got off scot-free, uh, he starts to frame Harry Callahan. He gets this big black man in an abandoned warehouse to beat the shit out of him. <laughs> and then he goes, oh, Harry Callahan did this to me. And like it... Like it they they turn crime into this thing where it's literally just criminal. The only reason they're criminals is because they because they hate the police and oh, they wanna, yeah. and they want to oh. provoke the police. But what makes the sequel so interesting is because Dirty Harry is popular as it was and as culturally important as it was, um, mostly uh, for the catchphrase. And a successful. <laughs> I'm not. I mean, that is a very famous and line. The persona that but he presented, I guess. But it's not like the climax of the film. It's almost kind of like Yippee motherfucker, where. You go back and you watch the first Die Hard, and it's just this throwaway line that you would never expect to become a catchphrase. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely a soliloquy, but it's not like at the climax of the film, and it's not uh, have anything to do with it. It's just. And then came sudden impact. Oh yeah, which... well yeah, well yeah, and that sudden impact's horrible. Um, but uh, Magnum Force is the second film, and it's an apology almost, um, hmm. in which. Um, the what Harry is up against is a vigilante force, and it's saying, "Look, no, we know we're not saying that all vigilantism is good, but at the end of the at the end of the movie, the only way Dirty Harry is able to get them is by becoming a vigilante." <laughs> like, oh no! So, like, <laughs> the, the political the political idea the political ideas are so muddled, and I really like the mil- the milieu of these kind of seventies uh, cop movies. I mean, it's obviously no French Connection, or even I wouldn't. Oh even, God, no! I wouldn't even call it. Doesn't even have sort of the minimalistic, sort of sparse coolness of something like Bullet, but. Um, but like, I, I really do like the way they look and the way they're shot. And I love that it's in San Francisco and cause I love that the way the city looks, but, yeah. um, yeah, none of them are particularly good. Max Magnum force is like over two hours long. And for a movie that has very little story, it's, it's interminable. And, um, I think after Magnum force was sudden impact and that was the one where they go, look, we, they, they go, look, Okay. He's not he's not racist and sexist because now he has a female partner. But throughout the whole film, the female partner is useless. She doesn't do she does she does like I think <laughs> yeah. there's a single scene in which she does something right, and the rest of it is nah. This is affirmative action for you. Mm-hmm. So like again, it feels like an apology, but not a real one. Um, then sudden impact. That's the one that uh, Clint Eastwood actually directed, um, 
where it's basically I spit on your grave meets Dirty Harry, where oh, this great. this woman is taking revenge on all. Wait, you mean sudden impact or the Deadpool? No, Which Deadpool one? is uh, Deadpool is different. One. Yeah, that's the last one. Okay. Yeah, um, I didn't know. I didn't think he directed Sudden Impact. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's the one he directed. And okay. actually, you can tell that it like during certain sequences, it is actually like it has a lot of cinematic merit, and it's actually really well directed, mm-hmm. particularly the climax. But again, that movie's really long, and nothing happens because Harry isn't actually. The problem with all these films is Harry doesn't do police work, and. The reason procedurals are intriguing is because there's a very specific way of evidence is set up, and that leads to the story moving forward, right. and that leads to this sequence where you chase this character down an alley, and that leads to you, you get, get to, to see, see them, them figuring use, it out. Yeah, you get to see them use their brains, but right. like none of the like Harry Callahan just shows up places where there are host- and then it turns out there's a hostage situation there, and like yeah. that's most of the movie is him just happening to be where someone where they in need the a Harry Callahan with type with the coffee like oh there's too much sugar in my coffee I had to come back yeah <laughs> but like it, the crazy thing is number one everything is a hostage situation there's like all of the because they always have a scene establishing how badass he is but it's always a hostage situation it's always the restaurant or like there's a plane that got uh, hijacked and jeez. Uh, like it's just he keeps showing up places where where people are being taken hostage and he has to it's shoot. Like Die Hard nine times in one yeah, movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, but sudden impact is again really bad, and in the end he go, he sort of lets her off. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he frames the the people she was killing as one of them as the murderer um, in order to let her go. So that's that's the end of that one. And then the Deadpool is just horrible. Is that the one with Jim Carrey playing? Yeah, the that's Rockstar? the one where Jim Carrey is. Like, they have this weird premise where Liam Neeson is directing a movie, but it also needs a music video in the movie, oh, so they right. cast... <laughs> I remember that. It's yeah. a very strange, and again, that's a movie where there's not a lot of actual police work. And it's <laughs> just like, it's just, we get a call and something's happening, so Harry has to go there and he has to punch someone or he has to shoot someone in the face. <laughs> like, they're all bad movies, and like it's what's crazy to me is, despite the fact that they're very... You know, everyone knows the name Dirty Harry, and everyone knows, oh, it's the Dirty Harry series of movies. And Clint Eastwood, you know, after The Man With No Name, and I, I think, think he might even be more famous for Dirty Harry than he is for the Leon films. Um, but hmm. probably. As far as icon- yeah. iconography goes and stuff, but they're all really low rent. Like, it's, they never threw money at it. They never said, oh, this is a Dirty Harry movie. A lot of people are going to show up. We should get a good script going. We should. Hmm. Like, it's always, they're always really low-rent, like, very definitive, generic B scripts that just happen to have uh, Clint Eastwood, who's not emoting at all. He is, that's the other thing, is unlike the Die Hard movies, which they get kind of bad, like, Live Free Die Hard isn't a good movie, but um, I kind of like them all the same, because Bruce Willis is charismatic. I mean, he's obviously, he's much more charismatic in the first Die Hard and stuff, but he's always charismatic. Um, Clint Eastwood doesn't do anything like Carrie yeah. Callahan is a nothing character. He's, he's sort of, if the man with no name had a lot of dialogue, <laughs> which is like the only thing that makes the man with no name, like intriguing is this, all the mystique and you don't know what's going on with him. And you don't know exactly know what he's thinking, but dirty Harry, you can't like, they try to work it the same way where he just doesn't emote and he's just squinting and he's just like grimacing. But and, and then they, Unforgiven came along and he changed like Yeah. He just sort I'm of surprised like, they never it. had a Unforgiven for for Harry Callahan. They never even referenced <laughs> the fact that that like Deadpool I think came out in like 87 um which is yeah. a full like 10 years after the first Dirty Harry movie and even more than that and it's 
they never they never reference the fact that it's like this fifty five year old man doing all these stunts and stuff. So anyway, Dirty Harry movies not great. Um, well, then I probably won't spend time yeah, catching up with them bother. at any point. Because I, I just, I just I, literally I never remember s- only the go ahead make my day sequence from Sudden Impact because my dad just wanted to point that out. Like this is a pop cultural reference that's well, important. He, he's right. I mean that when that movie came out. Nobody cared about. Nobody, nobody's talked about the movie. It was that line yeah, that yeah. you couldn't get away from. It was referenced everywhere. It mm-hmm. was like the go-to punchline for every comedian, every comedy show, everything went yeah. to "Go Ahead, Make My Day." I didn't know anything about Dirty Harry growing up. I just knew "Go Ahead, Make My Day" and "Do You Feel, feel Lucky?" lucky yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, and that, those are two lines within five <laughs> movies. Yeah. That that is the full <laughs> cultural uh, wow. extent of that of that series. So, I mean, I'd never seen them before, so I thought maybe there'd be interesting, or but other than their sort of muddled politics, uh, mm-hmm. they're not very interesting. Yeah, and as a filmmaker, a lot of people kind of, uh, you know, get really <clears throat> sort of passionate either way. Like, I know people who love a lot of his movies, I know people who hate a lot of his movies. Well, he is, he, the fact that he doesn't do, like, second takes, right. like, really... You really can tell in uh, sudden impact because some of the like di- right. some of the performances are just so horrible. Oh, you can tell in Jay Edgar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a biopic that I steered clear of. I yeah. just I, I saw the trailer, I heard the reviews, and I said I'm not no. going to bother. You I missed, really am not going to bother. Missed nothing. It's nice yeah. that the Academy has moved on to like realizing they don't need to nominate every yeah Clint Eastwood yeah. movie. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, I was kind of concerned, but. <laughs> Well, very good. Yeah. Okay. I Go see Fantasia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go see Lincoln and Fantasia. There we go. On the same day. Excellent. Okay, well, we're ready to move on to the director of the episode, eh? Yeah. Cool. All right. Joe... Dante. Yeah, you could just finish it for me that time. <laughs> we don't have to say it at the same time that time. I'm happy with it. Yeah. Cool. Worked with Roger Corbin and Steven Spielberg. Cast Robert Picardo and Dick Miller. Loves Mario Bava, James Whale, and Chuck Jones. Worked well with kids like in Matinee. He is Joe Dante, director of the He is Joe Dante. He is Joe Dante. Joe Dante ignited his movie career working for legendary low-budget producer Roger Corman, who provided similar opportunities to future directors Francis Ford Coppola and James Cameron. He worked as an editor on films such as Grand Theft Auto before co-directing Hollywood Boulevard with Alan Arkush. His first full-length feature film, the Roger Corman-produced Quickie Piranha, was released in 1978. Along the way, he directed episodes of the short-lived parody series Police Squad, as well as contributing one of the more memorable segments in the anthology film Twilight Zone the Movie. 
cementing and showcasing his love of the macabre with the cartoonish. But his first groundbreaking blockbuster breakthrough success came out around the same time as another surprise hit called Ghostbusters, which came out in the summer of 1984. And back then, you probably wanted to watch it before midnight. Yes, that's right. Joe Dante is responsible for that wonderfully imaginative horror comedy that we all know and love called The Gremlins. And a young man who co-hosts the Director's Club podcast by the name of Jim instantly became a fan after seeing that film, as well as a year later, a masterpiece came out entitled Explorers. Now, let's get back to the show and learn more about this incredible filmmaker. So, uh, before 1984, when Joe Dante made The Gremlins, uh, he'd actually, other than his sort of segment of the Twilight Zone movie, he'd only worked in in independent uh, films. He had done, you know, he was one of the directors on Hollywood, I'm sorry. Hollywood Boulevard. It is called Hollywood Boulevard, okay. Um, It's Hollywood Boulevard, he he directed Piranha, he directed The Howling, um... But Gremlins was sort of his first uh, major motion picture. It was produced by Steven Spielberg. Um, it was, you know, it had a sizable budget for the kind of movie it was. It was kind of uh, his big coming out. It wasn't originally supposed to be that, even. Like, it was, like, Steven Spielberg wanted to, you know, uh, start, like, his own production company and everything. And I think he wanted it originally to be, like, a low-budget horror movie. Like, he wanted the Gremlins to be... You know, a lot darker and more disturbing. Yeah, in Chris yeah. Columbus's original script, there's, it was a lot more violent. It was a lot more bleak. There was uh, decapitating the mom's head. Yeah, <laughs> Giz- Gizmo turned into Stripe. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no more Gizmo. There was it was it was it was always kind of a horror comedy, but it was a lot more horror right. than uh, comedy. I think it was actually Steven Spielberg who initiated a lot of those uh, kind of changes. Sure. Well, that and the, and appearance, the studio influence, I'm sure. And the appearance of the gremlins themselves. They just, as soon as they, they you know, landed on an idea of what these things would look like, it, it interested them more to just do something funny with them. Yeah. Something, mm-hmm. something funny and scary about them at the same time. So, And horror comedy at the time was, I think, just, you know, it was not taboo or anything. I, I'm not. But it wasn't. Uh, it was not a successful formula. No, the there wasn't no. really a legacy. Still, like there wasn't. Nowadays, I think there is a legacy. Not necessarily. Like not necessarily something Hollywood would point to and say those are successful movies. Let's duplicate them. But at least independent horror filmmakers, there's a legacy of horror comedy. Right. Um, I think at that point there was only. I guess you could. It was Evil Dead one even out at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Evil Dead was. Like maybe Evil Dead and like uh, you go back to like Abbott and Costello. Right, Frankenstein. Like, sure. But one of the things that kind of impressed me about Gremlins is that it does horror. It's a horror comedy in which the horror scenes are scary and the comedy scenes are funny. And yeah. it horror comedy often just means uh, comedy, a, a comedy that has a plot that would seems like the plot of a horror movie. Mm-hmm. But you know, you look at the sequence like when uh, Zach Gaffigan's mom is sort of running, walking through the house and she keeps encountering these things and it's, and you have that creepy Christmas carol playing. Um, Do you hear what I hear? And it's like, yeah. it's shockingly violent compared to what it's come. 
Like you yeah. know, no one ever sees. Seeing that as a kid was pretty traumatic. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't traumatic for me. I was just I was so happy. I was I loved it. I was the second I saw that gremlin explode, I seeing I, him in the Christmas tree like blend in with yeah, the lights and yeah, stuff. Yeah, with his glowing eyes and Yeah. That's that's scary and she's, you know. So I I I really like that about this movie. Granted, that is like it's pretty much just that scene, <laughs> and the, I think like maybe the the scene with the teacher, mm-hmm. um, and then it, good. and then it quickly turns into the Looney Tunes. But uh, yeah, I think as we go on with this episode, we'll learn that uh, Patrick's sense of humor isn't necessarily in tune with with Joe Dante's. No, I do think this is a funny movie, though. Yeah. Oh but. yeah, and you know, there's certainly um, things to you know. I, I, it's funny because he really amped up the humor so much in Gremlins too, because it was like I want to. No, there's no satirize. horror. There's no right. actual horror. Well, in I wanted Gremlins to satirize too. the idea of making a sequel to Gremlins. Yeah, and it, it, it was just like I want to actually make fun of commercialization, even. And the, the the idea of doing something like that at the time was completely subversive and wonderful. And in this movie, it's it's fair. It's played fairly straight. Uh, you know, obviously, besides having the comedic elements, but uh, I'm still I'm still perplexed by the the Phoebe Cates monologue. Like, oh, it's wonderful. I, it's I'm, so yeah. fun. It's I, it is, maybe it's the wonderful. Funniest. It's wonderful. I'm I think like, it's. I honestly think that's the funny because I got to the music box had a Christmas double feature yeah. where it was Die Hard and Gremlins. I was there. I saw yeah, that too. That was it. Was wonderful and like. Just there's a lot of you know moments always play better with a crowd and mm-hmm. you know growing up in the 90s not being able to see movies like this or any of Joe Dante's movies in the theaters yeah like being a chance to see getting a chance to see Gremlins with a crowd really did change my appreciation for it number one um, you got I got to hear like a hundred people fall in love simultaneously when as soon as Gizmo, Gizmo pops his face up like it how is, can you not I the puppetry is so great but also the the funniest moment in the movie is. After that horrific monologue of just like just terrible trauma, you just it it cuts to Gizmo's face being like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> like Gizmo doesn't know why this is in the movie. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, on the commentary, Joe Dante says that he honestly like thought like he was on like he honestly was thought it was kind of he liked the fact that it was kind of sad, but honestly, to me, it just plays like pure comedy. I don't. I don't think it necessarily gives any depth to her character. I think it's just funny. Well, I, I remember, um, you know, it's one of those things that <laughs> my, my niece, um, you know, when when she when the year that she, uh, you know, realized that there's no Santa Claus, I remember saying, "Okay, well, bad news is there's no Santa Claus. Good news is we can watch Gremlins now." <laughs> so, like, you know, showing her that movie was 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 great. Um, yeah, I, I I have a great time watching Gremlins every every time I see it. And I've seen it uh, I don't know I don't know how many times. Yeah, you know, it's, me it's, too. It's, it's you know every year around Christmas time. It's one of those movies I might watch. Um, and uh, it is interesting that it is one of the two movies of the summer of 1984 that uh, helped contribute to the rating of you know PG 13. It was that and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, yeah. and because they were just so in, you know more intense than your usual PG movie, they were more disgusting, and the MPAA realized they needed an in between rating for PG and R. And what's interesting is that Gremlins was re released in 1985, uh, still with a PG rating. <laughs> like they didn't change it. They're just like we're still going to keep it PG, hmm. which I thought was was interesting. Um, 
And what I think, I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't, you know, also mention the score by Jerry Goldsmith, uh, who yeah. just really captures and really enhances the mischief, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and the tone of that movie. There's all kinds of strange, you know, that sounds yeah. going on in the score that you when don't the, really when hear the, very when well. they're being hatched and stuff. Yeah, just yeah. The, just these kind of like, isn't this really creepy? But it's we're kind of having fun with it too. Yeah, you know? it was just it was a totally different kind of. Uh, of a of a of a feel that or, or a sound to a horror movie that you never 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 really heard before, um, and Goldsmith was always great at coming up with interesting textures like that. Same with same with Poltergeist, you know, using the oh yeah the, the children's you know sing along nursery school type thing to add to the add to the horror. There's some you know something potent about that. And the, and um, the sort of electronic sounds in Poltergeist to sort of yeah indicate something's wrong coming from the TV and yeah. stuff like that. I think there's something about the tone in most of Dante's movies that works for me because it might be a very base, simple reason. I just get the sense he absolutely loves movies. He respects his audience because he's always been a member of the audience himself. And there's just an element of like... Well, it's, it, he, loves, he definitely loves movies, but it is a specific... Like yeah. he, well, he's yeah. not referencing Fellini. No, not, no, 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 no. He's no, not no, referencing no. exploitation he's films. Referencing he's referencing the monster movies yeah. and the things that he grew up watching, science fiction and whatnot. I mean, he's got... Uh, he pretty much always throws in like a movie scene from something that he grew up loving. And the tone of... I mean, we're going to be talking about matinee later, but what, um, what, uh, what sort of was interesting to me was like the tone of the town is the exact same as matinee, even though... Um, yeah, I could even, see that. Even though Gremlins takes place in the in the eighties, a lot of his movies are filmed on actual like you know sets and not in actual towns. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and it's and it's very clearly a soundstage in the that right, opening shot stage. of the yeah. of the uh, well, not I guess not a soundstage because it's on the lot. It's not in a actual yeah, stage, but um, but like it you know in this in Gremlins, there's a shot of 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 the mother watching it's a wonderful life and it does feel like a very frank capra mm-hmm. kind oh, totally, of like totally. very wholesome um as as violent as it which makes the violence more fun mm-hmm. it makes it's it's what makes the violence so surprising but then it subverts yeah. it because that's what he does right with his kind of absurd kind of take on it is because like just the idea of the fact that zach gaffigan is like 23 or 24 but he like he act like if he was played by a twelve-year-old, there nothing, nothing right. about the character would have to change. He's got right, such yeah, a wide-eyed I mean, innocence about him, and that's what most of his characters. The the, main, most of the main characters are usually boys, yeah, uh, around the age of you know twelve or thirteen, and they have that sort of, you or know, at the very in, least, they act like boys. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Zach, uh, it's Galligan, by the way. Uh, Zach, um, <laughs> sorry, it's okay, it's Zach no. Allen Finakis. Yeah, yeah, actually, right there, you go. Um, but that's, I mean, that's a common thing with, with what Dante does is he likes to take, you know, the Norman Rockwell, the suburban, you know, setting and just sort of, you know, throw some mayhem in there. I mean, that's what the Burbs is all about. Um, and he, you know, he does it in almost all of his movies or, you know, a lot of his, a lot of his movies do that. Um, and, and Gremlins is sort of, you know, the, uh, the epitome of that, that theme that he's going for just like. Going, you know, and that and that and, and, he, you know, and he grew cut. up in the fifties when when you know the suburbs sure. the suburbs were you know uh, and and monster movies you know coexisted for the first time and you know monster movies were more you know becoming more and more common in the fifties you know in the Cold War era and you know he and and that stuff I'm I'm sure just you know sticks with him um, and he brings a little aspect of you know either. You know, uh, you know the the suburban malaise, and you know the mo- the monsters, and the sort of 
absurd political rhetoric uh whatever you know whatever's in the air at the time of the 70s 80s or the 90s and just kind of mixes it all together and it's not and and it's it's interesting is that you know the two people the two filmmakers he's you know worked with the most or just produces stuff the Corman. most Corman and Spielberg and he's definitely a combination of those two yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, you know? he's very he's very lucky that he got to work with. Yeah, considering how much he he is like them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, especially like the opening of the Burbs, but the opening of Gremlins, like it all feels the same way. Spielberg always opens his suburban right. movies as he's he very he idyllic, this, very right, um, very almost squeaky clean kind of. Um, but you know, so a little little subversive stuff in, in in you know in in the nooks and crannies. But there's always something bubbling underneath the surface, right? Whether it be gremlins, and I just remember seeing this around the same time as Ghostbusters. Yeah, and they thinking were same summer. Yeah, and thinking like, man, just the so this wasn't a Christmas movie. This was a no. summer movie. Yeah, yeah no, was. they came out around the same time, and I just remember thinking like, God, it's it's so weird to see. Just you know, you're, you're laughing and then cringing almost you know simultaneously in certain instances, and how he's able to do that so effectively, and you know where you know you're laughing at you know the the fact that they're watching um, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and singing along, and how goofy and playful it is, and then you get to the you know the final moment where he's you know ready to. Uh, multiply again and his how he's contorting and how gross which he I looks. do I do think it, not necessarily a rip off but definitely inspired by Evil Dead's sort of ending yeah. where the sunlight is finally coming in through the cabin and then the, the, the evil face the Deadites are muta- are sort of rotting and mutating and like bubbling some of the makeup exploding. effects are very similar yeah yeah that's a good point that was something I got it from that um I I mean it, the the one thing I would say about this movie is that. It really does just sort of it just decides to be Looney Tunes for a good like twenty five minutes where there's not a lot happening with the plot there's not a lot happening with the characters we're just gonna see like gremlins, gremlins being silly goofy. and yeah well I mean he put post it notes or like he would have in the stu- or in the uh, you know like in the in the writing room or whatever all the writers and the the crew together would come up with brainstorming like crazy things gremlins would do yeah and just like you know come up with a list <laughs> what kind of hats can we put on these gremlins <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do like that point that transition point where you see them and they're all just gremlins running down the street in that sort of stop motion yeah. shot but then like later they're suddenly all wearing clothing <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and and you know he he likes to you know Put a lot, I mean, Gremlins is, you know, and Gremlins 2, of course, is just a grab bag of movie references, uh, even in the background, even the, like the most minute details somewhere in the background. I mean, you know, the, ob- the obvious ones are, you know, Invasion they're watching the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, yeah. It's a Wonderful Life. But then you got, you know, Forbidden Planet, you know, uh, there's a there's a great Robbie the Robot, Robbie the, the Robot in, in the, the adventure in that and that scene Spielberg has, a, a, well, yeah, Spielberg has his cameo in there, but that scene has uh, a gag in it that I never noticed until within the last few years. Hmm. And in the background, you see the, t- the the time machine, the original time machine. That's right. And and uh, it disappears. And then it disappears. That's like right. they cut they cut to Francis Lee McCain on the phone. They cut back and there's the, the time machine has disappeared. And there's smoke <laughs> and there's people in the background wondering what's going on. I've never noticed that. Every time I see it now, I laugh hysterically. It is so funny. Um, and he's always putting stuff like that in the background, so just like you know, blink and you miss it sort of references. Um, 
He never tries so. to call attention to him where it takes you out of the movie, which I kind of appreciate. Well, that is, I, I mean, it, I, <laughs> Gremlins 2. Well, in Gremlins 2. Uh, Gremlins, yeah. Gremlins, li- Gremlins 2, he literally takes you out of the movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he yeah. definitely does yeah. that. Um, but it's, it, it, I mean, for a movie with a, like, I mean, it, it, I don't know how it was when it first came out, but very dated and sort of sad flash dance reference. Yeah, that, that's about the only thing that I think really makes it. I mean, some of the inventions do, but yeah, but, but, it's but, really, but really ridiculous. But that, but you're right. The flash dance break dancing, that's definitely of its time. And, you know. But um, that kind of stuff's almost. But the rest of it holds up. I mean, it's it's still fun. I mean, it's still like you don't. I don't watch yeah. it that much. Going, oh, this is such an '80s relic, you right? Know? Mm-hmm. Um, it it's still it's still from, uh, it's still the product of a filmmaker whose you know work was always, uh, subversive and different, and you know, um, and and and. I think timeless. Yeah, you know. He, I will say I want to. I want to mention the one thing I don't like about this movie is after like just having a rollicking good time and just being like, let's enjoy the chaos, let's enjoy the sort of Looney Tunes anarchy. Um, the movie ends with, with the, uh, the the Chinese man who owns the shop like showing up and scolding everybody, and like it really does linger on people feeling bad for what they've done, and then that's how the movie ends. He's just like. That's you guys should be ashamed of yourselves. Well, you should, and the, like you're not ready. You guys, this is what your white man does to everything nature gives it. And then he like sort of like wags his finger at them, and then he <laughs> just walks off. And that's the that's the mood that you leave the movie. With. Right, but that also thing thing that's going on in that scene is something that has always been, uh, you know, an, uh, uh, something that he's always tackled, which is, you know, criticism of media and how much media and TV and images influence our behavior, uh, good or bad. Yeah, you let and him watch TV. You let him watch television, and now <laughs> yeah. you see what happens, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, and it's, it's true. I mean, we will, I, you know, a lot of the mayhem is the gremlins mimicking what... How how they saw flash dance? I have no idea, but <laughs> apparently they know That's what it is. Point. But I'm not gonna. I'm also not. I'm also not gonna question it, right? Um, because it's it's too much fun. Um, uh, I just. So it, it I, I like think that's just nowhere. I think that's. <laughs> I think that's just Dante. You know, just kind of like working that in. Um, you know, just that. Just so the movie has something to say, like a Roger Corman movie does. I mean, a Roger Corman movie is a very is usually a very silly thing, and he tacks on a ridic- on a on a message at the yeah. end and looking well, almost looking right note. at the audience and saying, "How could we let this happen?" Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so I think that's just him, you know, giving a nod to Corman at the end. I All would right. agree yeah. with that. Yeah. I mean, again, like I think. It's interesting to see, you know, from the beginning of his career to coming on to something a little bit more commercial like this, working with, you know, a huge special effects budget that was kind of arduous and intense and difficult for him and exhausting at times. He wasn't used to having to work, uh, you know, with with this level of, uh, you know, um, puppetry and all these things. And yet he managed to, you know, come together. I, I, I was thinking, like, if you want to appreciate Gremlins, one thing you can do is watch one of his many imitators. You can watch Ghoulies or oh, Critters. Yeah. Or, or I, I was talking before we started recording, I saw The Munchies before, <laughs> yeah. before I, like, which is, I think, yeah. was that a Roger Corman production, actually? 
I, oh. I, I want to say maybe one of his companies, one of his companies, uh, had something to do with it. I don't think his name was on it. I saw it in the theater, yeah. and I, I, I think it was the first time I started like being Mr. Film Critic in around yeah. 1984, and I had signed star ratings to everything. I think that was the first movie I saw in a the theater that I gave zero stars. <laughs> I, I believe I was that. But, angry. I mean, you look... I mean, one thing yeah. Gremlins has over those movies is a budget. Like, the puppetry yeah. is definitely... It's phenomenal. Sparse. It's, um, yeah, it's incredible. I do... I mean, I think it's even better in Gremlins 2. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but uh, like... I think the puppet. I think Gizmo in Gremlins Two is probably my favorite puppetry of any movie ever because it's just you. You love him so. You love him so much. He's so cute, and it's hard to. Rambo. It's He's hard cute to make badass it, is what he is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, like Gremlins like, gave us not, Critters. But too. It, yeah, but it's not. It's not just the the budget. Like Critters doesn't have that tone. It's Dante that really like establishes like critters will have scenes where they're fucking up places and they're there's gags where they're squirting ketchup into each other's mouths and they're right. talking like a silly language and stuff like sure. that. Like like that are clearly trying to do the bar scene, but they don't have that same feel. Right. They don't they they don't have that sort of uh sensibility behind them. They just feel like we're just imitating mayhem. Mm-hmm. And I think once you sort of uh, realize that how much of it isn't just uh, oh it's not just anarchy it's a very specific Looney Tunes kind of nineteen like sixties monster movie very like wholesome like anarchy <laughs> and stuff like it, it's it it it's, it has a lot more character. He's really it. good at balancing the wholesome with the chaotic, yeah. and in he doesn't and he doesn't differently than Spielberg because Spielberg always does the that Spielberg you know when he was doing his sort of suburban films like he did the same thing but. Spielberg was always very sort of almost almost Robert Altman like early on with how naturalistic scenes would play out and there'd be like dialogue overlapping each other and stuff whereas Joe Dante wants you to know that this is all on the lot and he he, he gets excited that it's on the lot he yeah. likes the fact that it this is the this same is a town square that yeah. Music Man yeah. was shot and stuff like you know like mm-hmm. so and I I do think that you know as much as you can draw similarities that is sort of how Joe Dante defines himself very separately um, than Spielberg, where a lot of the other filmmakers who sort of worked under Spielberg productions don't necessarily have that same voice. They they feel like more they feel more Spielbergian than they feel uh, right. than they feel Toby Hooper or Richard Donner or stuff like that. No, that's probably true. And this is my I think this was my first experience with Dante. I think and uh, yeah, because this came out before Explorers and. <laughs> this was also my first exposure to to because uh, as anyone who's watched uh, at, at least two Dante movies knows, he works with a regular stock company. Oh yeah, actors. I was gonna say yeah. my favorite thing about my favorite thing about Joe Dante is that he cast Dick Miller. Yeah, that is my that is my number one favorite thing. I don't know why everybody doesn't cast Dick Miller. They should. Dick Miller is <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite character actors ever. I know. So, I, I mean, he's he's uh, he's so funny in this. I know, and that's it's great to see him like have you know a nice little monologue and reference the title of the movie and everything. Yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, he's he's definitely had like guys like Robert Picardo show up in, in, in a lot of his movies as well. And it's just one of those. It's comforting in a way when you see that name pop up or you see the character show up in all of his movies. It's just I and I always he always gives him a decent part. Too, it's not like let's just throw him as an extra or whatever. Yeah, it's not like Rob Zombie, where every single character oh, with any speaking line yeah. happened to be in an exploitation movie thirty years ago. Everything. Yeah. 
My favorite, my my first experience was uh, Twilight Zone, the movie, which yeah. well, it came out in 1983, and he directed um, the third segment. Uh, yeah, the third segment with the boy with the magic powers. And again, he was you know uh, talking again about you know media influence on young minds. You know, if a boy really had those powers, and you know, was that susceptible to the images he's seen on television? What kind of home would he have? And it's a pretty freaky home. Um, I remember that movie, that that segment and the George Miller segment after By it far kept, the best, yeah. kept me up. It kept me up uh, for a few nights. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah. I mean, that was that- is that because I never seen the Twilight Zone movie, but I'm a huge fan of the show. If I've already seen all of the episodes that the stories are based on, is it still? Yeah, no, I think there's a, there are different take. I mean, the John Landis episode that opens it, it's 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 original. It's not based on, a, on okay. an episode. It's a, it's not very good, and it's mm. there's there's an air of tragedy yeah. over it because well, of the I talked about that. Yeah. Uh, the Steven Spielberg uh, episode is painful, it's and I'm a very I'm bland. a Spielberg fan, but it is by far the worst thing he's ever done. But then Joe Dante and George Miller come in, and they both kick ass with it. Uh, so the movie ends on a high note. But the thing about the Twilight Zone movie is that. None of the episodes end with that sort of dark irony, you know, oh, really? or that dark sort of like uh, you know, that that sort of freakiness. Every mm-hmm. episode just kind of ends peacefully and and wrapped up yeah. without much of a you know, whoa, I'm freak, you know, that sort of that uh, an ending where you're kind of freaked out about what just happened and what what's going to happen to this character. So that's that's the that's my main criticism of the whole movie in general. Um, but as a whole, like I mean, the 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 visual imagination on display in in Dante's episode predates Tim Burton by oh by you know quite a, quite a bit. I like mean, just sort of the the cartoon style yeah, approach the, to the, it. The shadows, the weird sort of canted angles, and uh, you know uh, the the lighting and everything. You know, I mean, it is it is Tim Burton esque, but it's 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 uh, it predates it by. Imagine the large Marge years. visual, kind of like thrown at you. A few it's not times. stop motion, yeah. is it? Oh no! But still, it's just <laughs> no. You, well, there might. I think there is some of that there in really? there. There is yeah. some of, of the creatures that come up uh, when he yeah. when he conjures up some the, of the the rabbit. The maybe? rabbit. Yeah, I mean, I, oh, I'm, I'm sure there's some stop motion stuff in that mm-hmm. film. Um, oh, the shadow, like the 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 magician when he pulls something out, something you know, we only see the shadow of it. Right. Definitely, there's some stop motion going on there. Well, I think we're about ready to move on now to uh, the second film of we're going to discuss here, matinee. Uh, this was <clears throat> set in the Key West during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, and the film focuses on a 14 year old boy who's obsessed with um, the upcoming visit of B-movie king Lawrence Woolsey, an energetic filmmaker based on real-life gimmick movie master William Castle. And the purpose of his visit is to promote his latest picture, Mant, a bargain basement horror production about a man who mutates into a giant ant. Probably, by the way, my my vote for favorite fictional film within a film. <laughs> well, if you get the French Blu-ray, you might also get the 20-minute version of oh Matt really in its entirety yes that's exciting yeah so this is a loving tribute to the you know the the birth of the monster movie and the atomic age sort of science fiction movie but it also kind of sends up small town you know paranoia manages to be a great coming of age story at the same time 
And it really celebrates the movie-going experience as a way to escape, but also confront your fears. Like, I, I, I just post, posted on Facebook, I think the woolly mammoth cave drawing analogy moment is one of the best su- summaries of the power of the visual image and it really sort of speaks to why I love going to the movies so much. And he really juxtaposes sort of effortlessly in this movie, um, just like the effect of the the movies themselves. And also like how, you know, that small town, you know, was dealing with so much, uh, they were being confronted with harsh realities. And, you know, the fact that that, that was like one of the first experiences they've had with, the news delivering this horrific uh, possibility of, you know, uh, nuclear strike, and what better way to, uh, you know, have a diversion than to go to the movies, and the way John Goodman plays, uh, you know, essentially William Castle here is just Lawrence so, Woolsey. Yeah, is just so perfect in every way. It's like the right amount of. Uh, energy and passion about what he does, and he never overplays it. And right amount of sleazy, right, right amount of slot yeah. artist. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know. It's just it's just a movie that I every time I watch it, I'm just kind of amazed by how perfect it is. It's there's not a false note at all throughout the entire film. I think it's my favorite Dante movie. Yeah, it's definitely mine. Yeah. Um, and it, it's sort of like I think he, you know he's sort of. The characters, you know, and the and the concept of the movie is like, you know, the apocalypse as directed by P.T. Barnum. You know, <laughs> it's just, you know, the the showmanship and, uh, you know, working in that, you know, all, all the coming of age stuff. I mean, Charlie Haas wrote the script for this thing, and it, it's a fantastic script. I mean, it's one of those. It's also one of those, wrote Gremlins, too. Right. And, you know, I... I I remember after it came out, I remember, I wish I had written that. <laughs> and that's sort of like the first movie that comes to my mind. When if, if, you know, someone were to ask me, you know, what, what movie do you wish you had written? I'd say matinee. Um, and I think I, I tried writing a movie kind of like matinee and, uh, later on. Um, but um, it's also the first um, of his war trilogy. Um, because in, in the nineties he made three films and they've all had to do with war. He didn't do that, you know, intentionally, it just sort of happened. The movie he followed this up with was a cable film called the second civil war. I've seen that um, once and I really liked it. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, that's a movie that's kind of dated, yeah, but, I but, it would be. Mm-hmm. but if you were to watch it now, which I watched it this week, it is rather prophetic. Hmm. Um, it, you know, it, it's sort of about, you can almost look at it as, as, as the coming of the tea party. Um, that that's that's sort of what I th- was thinking about when I watched it this week. Is like this is kind of like how the Tea Party came about, and this is kind of where we're going. You know, we're we're seeing all these people uh, who want to secede, you know, from the United States in the wake of you know Obama's reelection. They're idiots. It'll never happen. But it's kind of <laughs> funny to watch, and it's kind of funny to see sure. it played out in this movie that was made about fifteen or twenty years ago. And then after that, he did Small Soldiers, which was you know a, a, a commentary on war toys. Which was interesting because you know Burger King wanted to sell small soldiers when the movie oh, came out. Right. They wanted to sp- yeah. sell the actual toys. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of a contradiction going on with that movie, but um, still kind of a fun film. But anyway, sorry. Getting back to matinee. Um, uh, yeah, you mentioned the the woolly mammoth the uh, scene, and uh, you're right. It's 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 like it's one of 
Dante's best moments. I almost yeah. said Dante's peaks. I didn't want to. Say that. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't want to go there. I almost, that it almost came out on our show sometimes too. Yeah. Now you're trying to have your cake and eat it too by saying, "Oh, right. at least I didn't go there." But right. Right. Yeah, but I still went there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so and I and and really we should mention that you know again he's working with a young cast not just John Goodman but the kids are also very important God, to the yeah, whole thing he works well with and he actors. really does work really great with 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 young actors and he doesn't he doesn't shortchange their their scenes it never you never get the sense that he's you know trying to um, you know rush the dramatic stuff with the characters and everything that's mm-hmm. going on with them to get to the mayhem. You know, he, he takes his time. He, he, you know, he really does care about the characters as much as he cares about the concepts going on. Um, and that's a, that's a tough thing to balance. I'm sure for, you know, for any director, uh, you know, especially someone like him, who's, you know, clearly has a lot going on in his head as in terms of, you know, movies and, and jokes that he wants to get in there and, and references and stuff. But he also, you know, makes sure that, Every character has room to breathe, um, and 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 to be explored. And I and I love how the kids' characters are written. I love that you know the 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 main kid is you know gonna hook up with this band, the bomb girl. You know she <laughs> she's definitely a product of that time, and a lot of the characters are products of that time. Her parents, sure, her parents are her so parents are oh, hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just uh, like the like ext- almost extreme liberal. Yeah, uh, but even My, that time, almost mindlessly liberal. Yes. where they're just like as soon as they hear someone saying they shouldn't go see a movie, they're like, right. well, "We're absolutely We're going, going to see that, that movie." <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, so. I forgot what I was going to say. I'm sorry. Um, you think the, the characters ban the bomb girl? Yeah. And, uh, and, and even, even, you know, a lot of the supporting characters, uh, just the young, the young supporting characters are, are pretty funny. One of them was, uh, played, uh, uh, Omri, uh, Katz, I think is his name. Omri something, uh, played the main kid on, uh, Erie, Indiana, which was a show that, uh, came on around that yeah, time. Yeah, I think that might even be on Netflix Instant. It is on Netflix Instant. I urge everyone to watch every episode of that show, especially the last episode, which is, you want to talk about a, a meta, uh, freeform, satirical outburst. Oh, uh, boy. It is Dante, you know, firing on all cylinders. He didn't direct it, but you can tell he... He, I mean, he's in it. He's one of the characters in 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 the episode. Neat. And it is definitely him giving a big f u to the network for canceling the show. Um, so if if you have Netflix, Simpson, I I absolutely insist you 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 watch episodes of Erie Indiana, in Erie Indiana, especially the last episode. It is Gremlins two esque in its execution. That's funny. Yeah, I I really love that again. Joe Dante is able to balance the idyllic 60s, um, you know, despite like uh, and and then subvert it like the the looming threat of of nuclear warfare somehow doesn't choke the fact like this is the most fun movie about people who are convinced they're going to die soon. It's kind of fanciful. (laughs) And I mean, and and every single like male uh, like kid character is just it's just like horny as hell <laughs> and like i was gonna say like zach gaffigan is galligan galligan, galligan. Yeah. like he he doesn't have the libido of these, of no, these like nine-year-olds <laughs> and he's surrounded by phoebe cates yeah <laughs> no kidding um 
But and he doesn't. But he also ends matinee on a note that is more. Um, Again, I almost, I almost feel it's not. It's. I think it's more subtle and it's more, it's mm-hmm. more interesting. But yeah. it almost feels as. Is this really the way this movie like it's, you choose? Well, and this film is. Yeah, I mean, but but he's he's you know he's dealing with stuff like the end of the world and the apocalypse and you know the sure. the loop the 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 war in Vietnam and everything, and um, and he could have easily ended like there's the the, the last shot of the movie. He could have ended with those two kids just staring off into the ocean, a yeah. world of possibilities ahead of them. But he doesn't. He ends with the helicopters Helicopter. coming in. That bittersweet it's like, moment. It's it's yeah. It's it's with not over in, yet. In the jungle, playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're yeah we're we're not out of this yet. You know, the, the end of the world is still coming. <laughs> so, um, so he, he you know he 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 likes to end it on on those kinds of on the, on that kind of a note. Like right. yeah, we're out of the we're out of the woods, but not quite. And I <laughs> and. He he does a very smart thing where um, it is it it's like it is very it's honest um, emotionally and it's and it's very period accurate but the actual movie of Mant and all of the uh, and all of the gimmicks that go with it are a very idealized version of what oh, William yeah. Castle like, <laughs> well, the, it's the nuclear so much ex- more the nuclear oh, explosion yes, the, the is... scene in which he's projecting six films simultaneously yeah. in order mm-hmm. to make a fake nuke like that is that's very clearly. You know, but at the same time, like, like just the fact that real Emerjo um, was just a plastic skeleton on like a pulley. Yeah. It wasn't there. There weren't like seismic. There weren't sparks flying off. Like I right. do, I do appreciate that he, in order to capture how it felt being a kid sitting, because you really do feel like you're experiencing the you're experiencing man. You really yeah. do yeah. get excited to see what he has come up with next and. You sit there. You kind of wish that you were in that theater, and you kind of wish that someone would do that. You know, right? Um, and I do like that he chose, um, in, as far as those details go, to uh, to uh, to elaborate more, <laughs> to sort of and to sort of uh, take take more liberties. Yeah, we get to see exactly like some of the uh, cool stunts that he would try to pull off in the theater, and I think that's really like gr- those little details you learn about William Castle and like just. How he wanted to affect his audience, and it's very specifically it it is it like it feels low rent, but but very like sort of exciting at the same yeah, time. Like right. he always he doesn't he wants to treat it like a roller coaster. He doesn't too. lie. Like he he always undercuts sort of the he always undercuts it by the, either the cheesy performances that are actually in the film. Or, or, or the fact that the nurse who is who you have to sign a waiver for, she is like very clearly not a nurse, and even the kids are kind of pretty sure of that because yeah. she doesn't. Care. You <laughs> want to turn movie going gro- into an experience. She has those not great. Just- she has those great glib sort of uh, reactions to injured children. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's you know. He, he- it, it, I mean, Matinee is kind of a, just an extension of that scene in Gremlins 2 where the film breaks down yeah. and he's getting mm-hmm. the audience in on, you know, he's, he's basically breaking down the fourth wall and, yeah. and bringing the audience in on the joke. And it's no surprise to me that he eventually went on to make a, a, a 3D movie, uh, The Hole, which... Um, which have, you, has, have any of us seen that in 3D? I, not in 3D, no. Mm-hmm. It, it played once here in Chicago at the Music Box the same weekend uh, the movie Orgy played. Um, I unfortunately couldn't make it, um, and the movie is now out on, on DVD and Blu-ray, but not 3D. But not in 3D, and you know, does it, an, does it feel gimmicky? Like, 
even no. even watching it after the fact, can you tell like, oh, this was a very because I actually watched one of the many films I watched recently was uh, My Bloody Valentine 3D because I had such yeah. a great time with that in the theater. Watching it again on DVD, it is like half a film. It is. Because, I, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I agree. Effects. I totally agree. Um, is it? What did it, it? Does the whole feel like that? Does the whole feel like he's really getting his kicks? Or? No, I mean it's it's an okay movie, you know. For but you know, in, in Dante's catalog, it's you know. It's, it's minor. It's minor. Yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 you know, it, you don't, you don't get the sense that he, you know, he's, he's, he's really loving it, but I enjoy it just because it's been so long since I've seen a Dante movie. Yeah. You know, it's just like, okay, good. Well, so, it's, so he yeah. has a complete, like, it still has the same tone, would you say? Or um, does it still feel like a Dante movie? It's playful, I thought. I yeah. mean, I don't know. It, it just didn't really like. Because I mean, I won't. I'm not necessarily excited for like I didn't. The reason I didn't see the Ward was because the John Carpenter movie now doesn't mean the same thing as the John. Right? Is it the same thing now with Dante, or do you think he's still? Oh, uh, you know, I feel we'll like they, just, because, they wanted to get behind the camera again. I think. I yeah. mean, they might have just taken those movies. Because he's to, you like know. he recently started pre-production on a new horror film. Actually, yeah. So I'm, you know, yeah. it's. We'll see. I mean, yeah. it, it, we'll see. It with I think with that movie, that'll be the test to see if he's really right. still got it because. I mean, he he and like you said, John Carpenter and guys like you know John Landis, that sort of generation of horror filmmakers, you know, they all kind of wound up in the same boat. You know, they were they were big in the studios for for a good long while, and now they're back to their roots where they have to go to the independents mm-hmm. and, right. and, and raise money and struggle make to make their movies yeah. again uh, because the, the the big studios aren't interested in having them make their movies for them. They want younger directors. So yeah, I mean, I listened to a podcast with uh, with with Joe Dante, and he was talking about I have seven scripts that I want to get made, but it's been yeah. a, a chore. Now, unlike like you know, you back, know, in, his, not back in his prime, and it's not surprising because you know his last film, uh, his last big studio film was in two thousand three. It was Looney Tunes back in action, right? Which was a huge bomb. Huge. Um, I mean, the studio got way behind. You know, they got behind it. And they released it Thanksgiving. You know, it seemed like a sure bet, but they also re- releasing it against. Uh, an abhorrent and, and awful, you know, the Cat in the Hat movie, which for some reason parents made a choice to take <sighs> their kids to depressing. that instead that of the Looney Tunes movie. <clears throat> yeah. And um, do, do you think it's harder to be, to make an independent film now than it was when Joe Dante was making independent? Like, cause no, it's probably easier. Think, yeah. So mm-hmm. especially I, since he's got name recognition. Right. right. I would I would think that if he has seven scripts he wants made, unless they're very ambitious. You know, Inner Space is a movie that couldn't have cost much. It looks pretty low rent. Like, I, I'm not sure what the scripts are, but I would think you'd be able to get them made, right? Like, what? What I'm would the sure Roblox be? I'm not sure what's like. You know, holding you know holding them up or whatnot. But I know one of them. He says actually about Roger Corman, like him trying to make one particular movie. Which would be great. <laughs> like yeah, and, and Roger Corman's one of those guys who who pops up and and has cameos in his movies. Like he, yeah. Roger Corman's in Looney Tunes movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, but but you know, like I think Dante, you know, he 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 could. I would love to see him make a movie that is just you know just the characters without you know, the monsters and the mayhem and the satire and everything like that. Cause I think he would be really good. Like we were saying that he's really good at doing the coming of age stuff, mm-hmm. mixing that in with, you know, all the craziness. I will say, and, and I think, I think he would make, he would, he would make just a great, uh, a movie just about, you know, I don't know how, whatever the theme would be coming of age or whatever. He, you know, he almost directed little man Tate, which I can't wrap my head around. Really? He was, he almost wow. directed that. 
Um, there's a lot of movies that he almost, you know, directed that he, for hmm. some reason, didn't. That are just kind of like, well, that's interesting. But I, I, yeah, okay, I can see that. But then, it'd but, be nice to see a low key Dante movie. I'd really. like to see what it, what he would do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting for 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 matinee too. Is like some of the uh, the the cameos. Like I hadn't realized Naomi Watts was in it until I just watched it. She's in the shopping cart movie. Oh and, my god! Really? Yeah, that's her. In the oh, show. I didn't oh. know that. <laughs> I never knew that. That yeah. shopping cart movie is <laughs> that so, is so funny. funny. Like yeah. I, I love again. Like the way he undercuts. He's not just about oh anything. If it happens in the movie theater, it's magic. Like this yeah. is. And then when you say <laughs> you say that the 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 sort of the mammoth the cave painting sequence is about why people love like movies. I think it is specifically about why people love horror movies because it's well, about yeah. being scared. Like and and I think I think. That, but I think that's what initially hooked me into going and loving movies. Right? right. But but I mean, like, it feels a lot more, it feels very specific. I mean, and that shopping cart thing is the same thing where it's like, no, we're not just, we don't just love everything. This is really yeah. dopey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then John Sales plays one of the uh, movie protesters, mm-hmm. which was kind of cool. And uh, I don't know, it's like, again, having your, your Robert Picardo and then, of course, Kevin McCarthy. If I had to say... If I had to say anything about uh, matinee that, I, that I'm not a fan of, it's I don't. I think the lead is pretty bland. I mean, it's I think as written, his he doesn't he's a typical boy. He's yeah. sort of an audience identification, and he doesn't have a lot of like for someone who is an obsessive nerd about about like monster movies. He doesn't seem to have much like actual. Like, he doesn't seem to be very nerdy. He doesn't actually seem to have much of a character personality even. Mm. That well, kind it's of like around the cafeteria, the guys are kind of making fun of him for knowing as much as he knows. Yeah, but they, it's one line. It's not like it, he's not, he's not ostracized because of that. He's ostracized yeah. because he doesn't connect to people because he just knows he's going to move again. And I, it, as a whole, the movie kind of feels slight. Like as far as a climax goes, like the uh, the 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 sort of the punk poet kid, like just mm-hmm. <laughs> like. Well, again, I, it's, I feel like he's able to blend the sort of like the chaos going on so well. Yeah, I like this. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not. I love the movie, and I love, and I like that sequence. I like, but I would just say like it's not necessarily a movie that blows me away because it, it just, it just feels kind of, kind of slight. Like it is what it is, but it's not. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think the main character is a, a, a believable, you know. No, believe person. it's not a bad performance. But, it's just kind of. Land like it's kind yeah, of yeah, but I, I don't know. I, I I think I think for I think you know someone in that situation, like you said, you know, moves around a lot, doesn't make a lot of friends, uh, or doesn't you know make an attempt to make a lot of friends is pro- well, probably not going to be Mister Personality. You know, it's I suppose, probably, but is, it, I mean that's probably it just what he's would, uh, used yeah. to. But I mean, it's not like it would have taken me out of the movie if he was. Right. right. <laughs> like, yeah, that makes sense. But uh, I mean, it, these are these are minor. I just these are sort of the the one things that I was sort of keeping me from like being like this is an A plus. Love this movie. Can't wait to watch it again. I think yeah. it's just it's mostly kind of just pleasant and and enjoyable. Every now and then I like and, pleasant and, 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 and warm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I and really I enjoyed watching it, but. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was uh, also listening to the uh, podcast uh, with Dante. I learned that William Castle was originally supposed to do Rosemary's Baby, which is just insane to learn yeah. about. Yeah, That's I watched crazy. the. I, but, well, I was yeah, I was. I should have said um, I actually watched the William Castle documentary. Oh yeah. Um, bef- um that got made. Uh, I watched that before I watched Matinee, and it it's one of the other things is um, not only it, I'm sorry, Woolsey. 
is the yeah. Lawrence Wolsey, yeah. It, like, not only is he obviously like a William Castle stand-in, like it's very specifically ninth, early '60s William Castle, where he started to like suddenly he started to lose money, and he's sort of scrambling to get things made and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. that was another thing I was impressed with. The details was everything they said about how he was at that period of his career was exactly where John Goodman was at that career. It wasn't just like an amalgamation of every William Castle sort of story. Yeah. Hmm. I um, wonder what kind of theater tricks he would have done with Rosemary's Baby. Would he get, <laughs> would he get the audience pregnant? Well, according to the documentary, he wanted to make real movies. That was just like his... Yeah. It's just he had a fear of failure and he was kind of, you know, he was very tight with money and he was, you know, those kinds of people who are very afraid of being broken uh, were very tight with money. They They want to, above all else, guarantee... You know, and I'm sure he enjoyed coming up with the gimmicks and stuff, but sure. um, you know, he also worried a lot about that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, the house on Haunted Hill is really good. Is it? Yeah. I'm not a big fan oh. of I mean it's it's fine. I like Vincent Price a lot, but yeah. I love that uh scare with that sort of witch on the roller skate <laughs> <laughs> ghost. Yeah. Uh like there's but uh I wouldn't say any of William Castle's I mean again, it's kinda of weird watching his movies. Other than for historical purposes, like outside of seeing them in the theater, it feels incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um, especially uh, Thirteen Ghosts. That one felt really. That's very odd without the uh, little viewfinder. Yeah, no, that's true. No, I just again, I th- I think matinee is kind of like the you know one of the more, it's almost like the summation of Dante as yeah. a filmmaker. And it's and it's a movie where he is able to like have sort of these these because a lot of his films I feel. Um, they feel almost a little directionless, and they feel like he not he doesn't necessarily have a specific sort of uh, goal, or he doesn't necessarily have anything to say. Like things, I, I really am not a fan of Inner Space or The Burbs, but um, which makes me because sad. they feel kind of they feel kind of like they're just floating around. They don't they don't they feel kind of weightless, and Matinee is able to sort of do that where it it doesn't you know you have these diversions with. His like suddenly his friend you know his mm-hmm. friend who he's met once becomes a main character and you start seeing just his side of the story and you just yeah. and suddenly the girl that that guy likes is now a main character and it's not all just Wolsey it's not all just uh, him and his brother no it's, um, there's a loving tribute to movies there's a little bit of political you know, yeah her yeah. ex and her sort of punk, her punk poet whatever ex boyfriend you know like right. He, a delinquent ex-boyfriend, like, he becomes a main character. It's able to sort of float around and hit all these Dante trademarks without uh, ever feeling like weight, uh, ever feeling like it's aimless. Yeah, I, I would say Inner Space probably feels the least like a Dante movie, except for the really? appearance of, you know, Dick Miller and Picardo and all that. I don't, yeah, I guess but, so. But I, I mean, just because there's not much in the way of, there's no satire in it. Like every almost every Dante movie has an element of satire where he's satirizing either you know the media or politics or or movies. Or, that was just you know, a remake of Fantastic Voyage, essentially, right? Pretty much. I mean, it was. Well, I mean, it wasn't a direct remake, but right. I think that's the first, that's Inspired the direct reference it. point yeah. for that film. And then the Burbs. I I agree. The Burbs is um, doesn't you know I watched it recently, not not within the last few weeks for the show, but. The last time I watched it, I, I noticed it, it just didn't hold up for me as well as it used to. I think there's still funny stuff in it. But uh, the movie also just kind of sort of sells out at the end. 
I don't I mean, like it, the it end. Does, it does sell out at the end. If, if the movie had ended with Tom Hanks saying, you know, we're the freaks, we're not, it's not them, it's us, we're the, we're yeah. the freaks, I and ended right there, it would have, it would have, it would have been much, uh, it would have held up better. And been yeah. strong, but I just, stronger satirically. Very mm-hmm. much stronger satirically. But I just, yeah. I, there's some, there's some laughs that he goes for in the burbs that just don't quite hit as, as well as, as well as I remember them hitting yeah. before. Um, but there, you know, there's still some funny stuff in it. I, w- I wouldn't turn it off if it was on, but it's just you know, not not. Again, I attribute my love of some movies. I think even something like Three Amigos to like my initial like obsession with it, almost as a kid, like memorizing it or thinking it's one of the funniest movies. And that I wonder, like watching it with more of a critical eye, as you know, like uh, a person who enjoys deconstructing movies well, it's certainly even, i mean yeah. it's like but in terms of like my but sense of humor is, it's not even deconstruction but, it's right. just as far as entertainment value there's a lot in the right. burbs that's just kind of a slog is it i yeah. think so like in the first half hour it's just kind of you know kind of the other weird thing about the, the burbs is he never really establishes that norman rockwell thing that some like despite the fact that you would think it is the ultimate um sort of about suburbans and the dark side of it it never it never feels like kind of idyllic or sixties, it's always very, it's very contemporary. And um, the other thing we think about the Burbs is that, like Gremlins, Corey Feldman's in it, and you don't exactly know what his character is. Yeah, <laughs> I was, shows up. I was throughout the entire Burbs. I was like sitting there, and I was like, "Is he? Where's his parents? Does he own that right. house? Like, <laughs> right. what is his, like? What is going on?" And I think same- I think once they meet the family next door in the Burbs, it gets better. Yeah, but the, oh, for sure. the first, but the first you know twenty or thirty minutes, it you're right. It's kind of a slog, and it's kind of like this movie isn't as funny as I remember it being. Oh, I love it when they go to meet the neighbors. Yeah, that's, great. that's funny. That's and, probably the highlight of the film. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I don't know. I, the dream sequence oh, I remember being funny. A lot of and, Dante's silliness, like his sense of humor, just isn't mine. Like a lot of that, especially in inner space, so much of the humor just falls flat for me. Well, I don't like that. We talked about it on Facebook. I can't stand the dance moment. I think it's well, no, that's, stupid. I mean, that's like the yeah. worst thing ever. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, just uh, like, so so watching the burbs where it's just like, it, it's just like a comedy where I, like there's satirical elements, but it those, they're not necessarily driving the film. Like if it was more of a rear window type thing, like it felt, uh, it, he doesn't necessarily do a, a film in that, he doesn't necessarily do a good job of balancing both viewpoints. Like I was never in doubt that something weird was going on next door. There's he never d- does enough, I think, to throw doubt to make them, which in turn would make all of you know Tom Hanks and all of his neighbors look crazy. Mm-hmm. Like instead, they're just sort of acting like man children for no real reason. Uh, I don't know. Not a fan yeah. of that. Uh, I didn't get a chance to see Explorers, or um, I haven't seen the Twilight Zone movie. Uh, I could I, I could go on and on and on about Explorers. I've already done that on the podcast. Yeah. It's kind of like. At this I, point, everybody yeah. knows how I feel about it. Yeah, I, I really like it, um, except for the last scene. You know, the last moment in the movie, I, I, don't, I don't think works. But uh, is it just the where they're flying? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just but it wasn't again, supposed to end that way. Well, I mean, the movie didn't have an ending when they made it. Right. The, the script wasn't finished when they made it, and mm-hmm. Dante has said like he can't watch it because he's watching a. He knows he's watching a rough cut. He tried so hard to contact Paramount to get the movie re, re uh, edited. Yeah. Well, the thing that happened and they with said that movie, no. <laughs> right. Basically. Well, what happened with that movie was you know they. They, uh, you know, in the middle of production, they were still trying to work out, like, what what are these aliens going to look like? What are they going to do? What are the kids going to do when they get to the planet? And they were still working that out during production. And then during production, 
uh, the, the, the head honchos at Paramount who greenlit the film were gone and mm-hmm. these new people were in and they were like, we need this movie three months earlier. And so they had <laughs> yep. to like finish it. They had to like scramble to finish it somehow. And uh, so the movie that got released was you we know, could, not we a could, movie that they wanted to make. We so. could do an entire episode on films that happened during regime change. And right. then that regime decided to just fuck over that movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that is such a weird practice in Hollywood to me. Yeah. I don't that understand it. Yeah. Why, why the first slate of films that come out while you're the head, you want to look bad. I don't get it. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you I guess you want the other person to look bad bad so you look like it's just it's ridiculous to me well the thing is like explorers in spite of all that you know behind the scenes drama the movie is pretty you know seamless i mean it doesn't look like a movie that was you know uh cracking you know it wasn't a movie but doesn't look like a movie that was made by a director who was cracking under pressure or anything like that it looks pretty like a normal movie yeah um that just you know didn't quite have an ending you know but uh, there's a lot of, you know, Dante's signature elements. There's a movie within a movie when they fly over the drive-in. That's a lot of fun. That is awesome. <laughs> um, so I'd like to see that movie as an extra on the DVD also. Um, and it's also historically, int- well, you know, it's sort of interesting because it's Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix when they were kids, you know, acting together. Um, and they're both very good. And again, he he does that sort of, you know, first love coming of age thing very well in this in that movie as Definitely. well. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of those movies that, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure the audience will always like it more than, than Dante does, you know, Dante's not a fan of it because it's, you know, just wasn't the movie that he wanted to make. It just, it was, the movie I got that, that just complete got impression when I was listening to a podcast and they wanted to talk about it and he was, he sounded a little melancholy Yeah, and it was upsetting because <laughs> I'm like, it's 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 one of the movies, and I've mentioned it a couple of times, that absolutely made me fall in love with movies. And seeing it at a drive-in was just kind of like, you know, at, at, like at seven years old. You know, the same year I saw Back to the Future was just kind of like, I'm done. I'm hooked. This is it. Yeah. Like seeing kids going on this adventure. Oh, sure. It's a great fantasy. I mean, yeah. you know, the kids building a spaceship. and then they go tilt to a world, park. for fuck's sake. Right. It's just amazing. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then and then they get there and it's like Looney all, Tunes all, all again. The, it's it Looney pretty Tunes. much is. It's like Looney Tunes again. And these aliens, all they do is watch television. <laughs> and you know, and it's like it's 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 Looney Tunes. It's uh, it's kind of like his his movie, the the movie orgy, where it's just all yeah. these all these this all You're these right, images yeah. just kind of thrown into the mix and blended together. And I think it's a beautiful, like, potent statement that he's mm-hmm. making at, at the end of that movie. Um, that even the aliens are, of, of, like, influenced by media right. and pop culture. Yeah, and, and, and nothing else. But then they see, like, all this other stuff that goes on within the media, which images of nuclear war and, right. and self-destruction and everything like that. And they're wondering, like, what, what are you guys doing to yourselves down there? But, um, so, you know, there's it's definitely... It deserves a director's cut, but we're never going to see it. I don't. Yeah, think, and the and studio it's, itself isn't going to back it up. Yeah, and it's and it's and I I feel bad for Dante for for feeling that way about the movie because it is in every way a Joe Dante movie. Yeah, and it shows, and it's 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 a great thing. It's just you know it it just it just didn't quite come together um, at the end. Yeah, at the you very know, end. The very. End I will agree movie. that the very end is kind of weak, yeah. but everything else before that is fantastic. Yeah. It's one of my all-time favorite movies, and there needs to—they need to reissue the soundtrack too. So yeah. So, um, anything else you think we should cover? 
I think the satirical elements are the best part of Gremlins too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Gremlins and two is, is yeah. the second best movie. Yeah. Like, I think that's that's a really. I, I wish I'd read time to, time to rewatch it again. It's been a while since I've seen it, and I just I know it's it's probably its funniest movie. I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean that that was just you all know, the Donald Trump stuff. Oh, especially. Yeah. But the the, the, th- the great thing about the Donald Trump. Uh, or you know Ted Turner like character that John Glover plays is that he doesn't play him as a, as a villain and they and they don't play him as a villain like right. that would have been a really obvious choice they just he's just a big kid with yeah. a lot of cool toys yeah mm-hmm. and he's like there's actually kind of an innocence about him that is really refreshing he's you know it would have been so easy to make him you know uh, you know the asshole and 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 just you know but but I, so they actually give Robert Picardo that role. Like he's 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 the right. douchebag in that movie, um, and and so like it's I, I really I really love that about the film, um, and it's interesting that it like it came out in 1990. Like you would think a sequel to Gremlins would have been made been made a lot sooner than that yeah. because. And so I'm not really surprised that the movie didn't do very well, even though it was a sequel to apparently, the high-profile movie. Apparently, Warner Brothers like only went back to Dante like only because they couldn't work out a way right. to do it without him. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. yeah, and and I guess like several scripts had been written that Dante just wasn't a big fan of, and sure. and then he met up with Charlie Haas, and they and, you know they were like kindred spirits almost. And it's sort of the way he was it like because he never got to do uh, Jaws three people zero. Which is yeah. <laughs> which was his idea for a Jaws sequel in which uh, Jaws is e- <laughs> it opens with Jaws eating Steven Spielberg in in his swimming pool, like and that's sort of what Gremlins two ended up being was a commentary yeah. on yeah. sequels and franchises and stuff and like the kind of gross idea that a movie <laughs> that a movie or can even be a franchise, you know? right? Right. That's well, great. One of one yeah. of one of the things I noticed. This this week also another one of those Gremlins type things with the time machine in the background is um, the Gremlins two DVD uh, has a deleted scene where and Joe Dante plays uh, a a, TD, a TV director in a studio looking at monitors and calling shots and everything yeah. like that and you know his back is to the camera but you know it's Joe Dante you can hear his voice and he's he does this thing where he like takes a, a bottle of Pepto Bismol and pours some in a glass. <laughs> Like, who, who does that, first of all? Like, this tall glass, he's, like, pouring Pepto-Bismol in it, it, takes a swig, cut away to something, cut back to him, and he, like, puts ice cubes in it and drinks it again. <laughs> it's, like, this weird choice that he does, which I thought was really funny. Um, so, yeah, I don't have, I don't, yeah, I don't have much else I to like say Yeah, I like Gremlins 2 more than Gremlins. Now, I, I think, it's, about, I think I do. They're two completely different kinds of movies. I mean, they really are, you know. But Grem- in terms of my, my sensibilities and sense of humor, it's just... Yeah, I, I. The more I think about it, I, I mean, just, how can I, you? I mean, Tony Randall as the talking gremlin, yeah. the brain gremlin. I mean, that's just genius. I mean, the the voice and the mannerisms of that character and how they created it. You know, Leonard Malton showing up and right. you know doing his bad. He because he, he gave Gremlins a bad review, <laughs> and it, like, and so he was like cool right. enough to co- show up in the sequel and like make fun of himself giving Gremlin the original. And then Gremlins he gave Gremlins review. two a better review. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, you know, Joe Dante basically given carte blanche to just do whatever he wants. And that, that was the only condition he, he, you know, he, he gave the studios like, fine, I'll do Gremlins too. You got to let me do it my way. And, and 
<laughs> I'm sure they they were they were not expecting the movie that they got, which is wonderful. So that should happen more often for directors. Yeah. Well, I, I, don't, like I don't think it necessarily paid off for Warner Brothers. No, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't. No, it didn't. No. That's fine. <laughs> I think we're ready to wrap things up here. Absolutely. I mean, again, if you if you ever get the opportunity to see the movie Orgy presented in your town, please do. It's it's four it was, and a half hours. Four and a half hours of just just random non sequitur footage. Features, that, serials, TV shows, commercials, kids shows. Yeah, and it's all just kind of edited together in this absurdist style where you know the movie you know it could cut to anything at any moment. And as Dante said, it's meant to be walked out on. Actually, yeah. speaking of uh, one of the movies I would have talked about, you know what? It almost feels like the movie Orgy. Hmm. Uh, Holy Motors. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen it yet. Holy Motors. Why didn't you talk the about whole that? Pre- the whole premise, because ah! well, Holy Motors is it's number one. It's hard for me to talk about because I feel like there's a lot going on that I just didn't pick up on. But hmm. one of the the chief pleasures of Holy Motors is it could turn into any kind of movie at any time, and really? even once you sort of think you have an idea of how it's going to happen, it can, it keeps surprising you consistently. Um, and that and it's and it's very much a film about different kinds of films and it's a love letter to all these different kinds of films and hmm. the way and it all sort of comments on each other and stuff so well i better try and see the it. way you yeah. guys describe movie orgy that now they think about it uh go see holy motor <laughs> if you want to experience getting, getting that. rave reviews it won a lot of accolades yeah and yeah i've heard it stuff. described as the ultimate film festival movie in which it works better when you've seen see it with a bunch of other movies Right. And I make and when I heard read that I immediately even though I saw it sort of on its own I immediately realized that had to be true and I felt bad that I didn't like see it as a double feature with something else. Did you see it, Colin? No, I haven't. No, but uh, yeah, it I sounds like um, it just it just brought to mind uh, the movie or one of the things about the movie orgy. First of all, the original title was going to be was the it, it originally was seven and a half hours. Oh, that's I don't right. know how what was it decided? like just something he did for parties like yeah mm-hmm. well and then and then uh, it was something that eventually got toured around the country at one point and it was sponsored by Schlitz <laughs> yeah like Schlitz is like we'll, we'll 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 play this movie and we're gonna sell some beer too it was like yeah go ahead you know because that I mean, you have to have you have to have some beers when you watch the yeah. movie Orgy you really do so, you and, sure do yeah. and for it to be Schlitz like not yes a, yeah, that's, yeah. that's so great. <laughs> Um, so, so I do have a couple of questions about movie orgy. Just sort of about the, is it one like because it's apparently something he did like a lot like in the past before it was ever uh, on tour before it ever screened at the New Beverly and was screened in Chicago recently. Is it one thing? Is it a new like is the it, movie orgy just the name of the process and he's done different movie orgies? Well, there's it, different cuts of it. Like I yeah. said, it was the original was seven and a half hours, and then. It, it. I mean, he didn't like. You know, there's no like movie orgy two or movie orgy three. I right. think he just kind of whittles it down to wherever, whatever he feels. You know, uh, whatever venue is going to play it, what the conditions yeah. are of that venue, which which version would work best for that venue. I see. So mm-hmm. I think that's the deal behind it. And we got the four and a half hour version, which is fine because the seats at the Nightingale were a nightmare to sit in. Yeah, that's another um, reason why I kept it. 
and yeah. it's and it's, so, and it's for, for for people listening. This is never coming to DVD. No, this is you're never gonna get. Don't wait for Criterion. No, I've heard, no. it, from, I heard it from Dante himself. It's yeah. not coming out on DVD. No, but so. you might be lucky enough to. It might you might be lucky enough where it might show up in your town. Right. Uh, you just really got to keep your eyes peeled if it, if it does. And yeah. And you know, you, I guess you could always. You know, lobby and petition your local art house uh, to show it. Um, I don't know if that's you know. I'm, I'm sure that can be done if you have like a, a place like the Elmo Draft House or a music box type theater. If you're living in one of those areas that has one of those kinds of theaters where they do cult movies and and midnight shows and stuff like that, you you know, if you, if there's mu- if if there's enough of a demand for it, maybe the, maybe the maybe they'll be able to get it. Um, yeah. But that's the only way you're going to be able to see it. <laughs> and it's worth it. It's worth it's it. Absolutely. Get worth your it. friends together and just sit back and have some beers and just know that you're going to be there for a few hours. And uh, it's 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 a fun time. I would say some of the biggest laughs I've had with any Dante experiences in the movie Orgy. Yeah. And Amazon Women on the Moon. <laughs> oh, there's some he, funny did, stuff did in there. There's funny stuff in there, but it's not all it's, his stuff. I know, I know, I know. In fact, I, in I, fact, know, he, I know Landis probably just you know took it over the, and decided the, the, to. The, the black guy with no soul is still the funniest thing, yeah. <laughs> and that's Landis, and that's David yeah. Allen Greer and and John Landis. Yeah, like, yeah, that, I know. that's hilarious. I kind of like the roasting of Harvey. That's, and, that's funny. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just it's better. It's better than Hollywood Boulevard. It's definitely better than Hollywood Boulevard. And again, Amazon Women on the Moon is a partially a nostalgic favorite between me and my dad. So that's yeah. kind of why I have oh, the love for it. One more thing, uh, as far as Joe Dante goes, while you're waiting for his next film, I really, really love the site Trailers from Hell, which yeah. is something oh, yeah. he's, oh, it's it's great. he's done. Site. Like just all the people he's gathered, and just hearing like Edgar Wright talk about the uh, like the trailer for. Like how the trailer for Twitch of the Death Nerve inspired Don't and mm-hmm. yes. and just and you getting to see John Landis talk about you know twenty thousand BC or twenty million BC I forget yeah twenty million um, like just just seeing all these amazing directors and all these amazing creative people get to talk about um, you know why they love these films it's it's such a treat and it's still going and it's still going strong um, so if you're somehow not aware of Trailers from Hell yet check that out it's a wonderful site yeah I'm yeah, so glad Dante great. embarked on that that's fantastic yeah thanks Joe Dante for all your hard work <laughs> yeah no kidding <laughs> if you're listening and thanks for being such a cool guy we, I know we met, we met he's him. so approachable yeah I mean that was the second time I met him first time I met him uh, was in, ni- in 2000 at the Chicago International Film Festival. He he won like a wi- lifetime achievement award, and uh, he showed up at the Music Box in the afternoon. They were doing uh, they did a double feature of Matinee and Gremlins Two, and after Matinee he you know or before Matinee he came out said some words like oh, I'll talk to you guys after Gremlins Two. In between shows, I'm sitting at my and sitting in the Music Box. And it's it's almost an empty not an empty theater, but it's not very full. And I'm sitting at the music box. I'm writing my notebook, and these two people sit down right directly behind me, and they, you know, kick my seat. You know, I'm like, God damn it! You know, <laughs> like, what the hell? Of all the places, you know, they, they, the music box is a big theater. There's not many people here. They have to sit behind, right behind me. What the hell, man? And I turn around. It's Joe Dante and his wife. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, this is the greatest thing ever. Oh, this is so cool. Like, I'm so glad they're sitting here. And I, I think I asked him about, I think I asked him about Explorers being on DVD. It was not on DVD at the time, so I, I, I opened that wound for him. Um, <laughs> but just like watching Gremlins 2 with Joe Dante behind me, and he's laughing his butt 
off. Oh, and that's it. Awesome. I was like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. So, and I got to tell, such a cool I, guy. I got to tell Joe Dante that matinee is one of my all-time favorite movies, and he went, oh, so you're the one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's awesome. Yeah, and so, again, and again, and I asked him about what the deal was with the last episode of Erie, Indiana. And he filled me in on like what the backstory was behind that. And I have to insist on everyone again: watch Erie Indiana, Erie, Indiana especially the last. Was that episode. a kid show or was it that was a- kind of like it was? It was very Dante esque in that it was about kids in suburbia uh-huh. in a place called Erie, Indiana, where weird things happen. It's like the X Files only with kids. Yeah, or or yeah, kind of like Hardy Boys or something. Yeah, like that. Something or just like that. kids yeah. solving mysteries about some weird things going on I in see. their neighborhood. Um, and he was the creative consultant on, on the series and he directed a bunch of episodes and he's in the last episode playing himself basically. And, uh, it's hysterical. And I would avoid his amazing stories episodes. Not very good. You know, amazing stories as a whole isn't very good. I know. And I'm kind of sad to find that out like years later. Like I sort of romanticized that show in my mind. I did too. And and watching it on Netflix recently, I realized, yeah, this wasn't very good No, because as I it has a da- few good episodes. There's a but- couple good, but as Dante explained it once, uh, the thing that happened with that episode, with that show, is that Spielberg had ideas that he would, you know, pass on, pit, to, other pass on to other directors and writers. But the writers and directors didn't build on them. Mm-hmm. They just like wrote an episode about that idea, but didn't take it anywhere. So like the episodes are just kind of like. Oh, so it's about a magician who solves a crime. So it's basically just like okay. Spielberg's sketchbook. Pretty much, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. It's kind of disappointing now in hindsight. Yeah, it is. I'll probably go through it one day just because I love sure. anthology It's an shows. interesting relic to it go is. back and it's look at. It's definitely interesting to look at. Almost like the Twilight Zone 80s. Some of those are really interesting. Especially since a lot of directors got their start on that show. And yeah. you're like, wow. I mean, Clint Eastwood even directed an episode of that show. That's right, yeah. So. That's crazy. Well, Sorry. Colin, can't thank you <laughs> enough for all your uh, incredible we Joe Dante We couldn't be more excited to have oh, recorded this episode. <laughs> we couldn't have been more thrilled to have you on again. <laughs> thank you. It's always a thrill to talk with you. Thank so, you. Uh, I, I enjoy have it. You on it's again. fun. Yeah. 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 So um, where can people find you at these days? Like, uh, I know you're not big on the Twitter. and No, I don't tweet yet. I just, I don't feel like i need to post every thought i have on the internet yet i'm just not there um but uh you know you can hear my movie reviews on uh, nick digilio's show wgn radio uh go to wgnradio.com and download some podcasts of our, our my reviews with uh, the eric midnight childress. movie reviews midnight every movie friday reviews night with me and nick and eric childress and um i got a movie called folktale you can look up the trailer online on on vimeo and you know, March, April will be on IMDb or some other website in its entirety for everyone to watch. I'll let you know when that happens because cool. you did the music for it. So you should, oh, you know, yeah. I forgot about <laughs> well, yeah, that. I worked That's on that movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I never, you know, whenever I listen to commentaries and I hear people and they don't remember like actors, they don't remember if they were in that movie or not. I never believe them. But I guess that <laughs> does happen. I guess you do work on movies and then it's just there's such a delay. Yeah. That yeah. you forget about them. Yeah. I forget about myself sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm, um, you know what we forgot to do I, before oh, we sort three. of wrapped up? Yeah, we got to do our top three Dante films. Um, my, my number one would be Matinee. My number two would be Gremlins 2. And I think my number three would actually be Howling. That's a good choice. Yeah. We didn't really touch upon that, but yeah. It's, it's a it's, good it's, solid. It is. It is. Movie, I, and it's I think funny. I mentioned this when I rewatched it last year, but I was surprised at how serious it was, like yeah. in terms of tone and. 
Um, my number yeah, one... Howling 2 feels more like a Joe Dante movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think my number one will probably remain to be uh, Matinee. Number two is Explorers. And number three... I think I'm going to go with Gremlins 2. It's a toss-up between Gremlins and Gremlins 2, really. But I'll go with Gremlins 2 for now. Yeah, mine is number one, Matinee, two, Gremlins 2, and three, the movie Orgy. Oh, excellent. All right. Um, Yeah, so you can find me at the Twitter at Instant Gym. I'm on Twitter at Patrick Rapol. You can uh, email us, please do, at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And I am on Facebook. It's Colin Souter, C-O-L-L-I-N-S-O-U-T-E-R. Yeah. Um, visit our website, directorsclubpodcast.com. Mm-hmm. Um, my computer broke recently, so I'm not going to give you the website The website for my viewing journal. I don't know when I'm going to get the chance to update that again. We should start a Kickstarter fund. Yeah, Kickstarter fund to get me to buy me shit. That's how <laughs> Kickstarter works. <laughs> Keep you know, Patrick's Facebook wall alive. Right, you know, things I'm entitled to, like new laptops. Um, yeah, so... We're kind of debating. We'll see about uh, in two weeks if we're going to have our... We might as well say right now we're looking for guests for our next episode about uh, H.G. Clouseau. Yeah. Clouseau. Um, not a director I'm not too familiar with. Me neither. That's why I That's why I chose... We need a guest. That's why I wanted to do him. But we're going to be yeah. doing wages if we do this. We, depending well, on how busy we are, yeah. we well, might take it off, but uh, uh, we will be doing... Le Diabolique. Two years of French and uh, Wages of Fear. Oh, cool. Yeah. I've always wanted to see both of those movies. So at the very least, I'll see those two movies. Mm-hmm. I've seen Wages of Fear <laughs> is amazing. That's the one movie I've okay. seen. Great. So. Well, hopefully that'll happen. And then if not, you know, we'll, we'll let you know. Right. Just check the schedule, which is, uh, you know, on the sidebar at directorsclubpodcast.com. All right. So that'll about wrap it up. So we'll see you very soon and hopefully in a couple weeks. Thanks again, Colin, for being on the show. Thank you. All right. Fun. All right. Good night and goodbye. Good night and good luck. <laughs> Why does the sun go on shining? Why does the sea rush to shore? Don't they? For fuck's sake. Right. <laughs> Why do the birds go on singing? Yeah, Kickstarter fun to get me to buy me shit. That's how Kickstarter Um, but just like watching Gremlins 2 with Joe Dante behind me and he's laughing his butt off. Oh, that's it. awesome. I was like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. So.